0: In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose
1: just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch?
0: What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you want to Even watch? narrowing down a genre can be a
1: struggle.
0: How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, ah. Dad! Just do an interview already. Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve, and I'm Doing another interview. I'm going to be joined with Michael Worth, who's an actor, writer, director, martial artist in many, many different films, and he's also helping to um, re to, um, get martial art movies back into the limelight with um re- you know, getting them Blu-ray, getting them better copies and stuff like that with his Pearl River imprint. How you doing today, Michael?
0: I'm doing good, my man. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean. you You've done a, quite a few films that I've seen um, that I really enjoyed, including one of them, which we'll talk near the end, which I think was my actually I know I think I know is my favorite movie of 2020, Appleseed.
0: Wow, well then, then oh boy, then that. Uh, <laughs> thank you.
1: No, you're welcome. I'm not. I'm not saying that because of It was just it was the the one I want. I was like it's just for me. It just worked on all levels, and I can't wait till we get to that one because um, I think listeners probably need to go seek that one out on Showtime and things like that to see it. Oh, good. Now, I'm curious, when you were growing up, and I know you you were born in Philadelphia and you lived for a little bit growing up in the Chesapeake Bay area, and, of course, I'm in Maryland, and um, so we have some common areas in that spot. I'm living north north of Baltimore. What was it like growing up in the um, Chesapeake Bay, Philadelphia area?
0: Well, you know, I love it because I have such a – Uh, this connective tissue with it always because my, all my family is from there and for generations. And, and, um, because interestingly enough, my, my grandfather, even my great grandfather, they were documenting visually on film and, um, photographs their lives that it's like, it's come to life for me as a, and and specifically as a filmmaker, which is probably part of the reason I, I chose this path in life. Um, it uh, you know it's funny. It's not something you step away from. It's something you take with you. And I, I do that with my uh, with my my even my um, film work. If you watch the opening logo, for instance, of my my company, when it's when we start a film, you'll see this old black and white footage of a, of a woman doing a she's a girl actually doing a, a cheerleader you know a cheer at a at a football game. That's actually my mother. That was filmed by my grandfather. So it's like I'm trying to pay this tradition back to. And it was shot in um, Silver Springs, Maryland, actually. So, um, anyway, I'd, to answer your question, yeah, I, I I got very fond memories, particularly with the Chesapeake Bay, where my family spent. My family are all boat builders, so I've got uh, I've even got film footage, sixteen millimeter film footage of my uh, great great grandfather, Captain Bill, is doing a uh, he's working on his boats and building them. So it's, uh, it's a big part of it.
1: For curiosity's sake, like, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but for the last. Several years. There's been an Annapolis Film Festival that they hold every year where they have a lot of independent work and in focus and things like that. I don't know if you've ever tried um, to have your work there and get a chance to come home, be around family and also get to do so it's like it's like a business expense then. I don't know if you're ever if you heard about the Annapolis Film Festival.
0: No, you know, I know I haven't heard about it. I've actually never been there. I strangely enough of all the festivals I've done, I've done dozens of them. I've never gone even really remotely near that area ever, you know, like Maryland or Washington or, you know, anything like that. So it would be great. It would actually be great. I've, you know, just to, you know, with something to, I've actually got a documentary I've been doing for the last six years on my grandmother and I'm incorporating all the footage from that area into the, into the documentary that we shot back in the forties and the fifties and, and uh, probably be something to submit to them when it's finished.
1: Oh, that would be awesome, because I regularly like to go. The last two years, they've been virtual because of the pandemic. Um right. But prior to that, it was always nice to get to see, to see such different filmmakers' works. And some of them were, were really great. Some of them are not as great to me. But, I mean, everybody's different. Everybody will receive a filmmaker's um, work differently. And I, that's why I don't want to say it's bad or good. I just know what it was in my experience.
0: Yes got it yeah well you know i mean it's that that's the, the beautiful thing about film festivals right i mean it's you're basically opening the door to you know usually what at least they perceive as as good products or good representation of the current film you know uh, film releases or you know that are, are intending to be released but you get such a variance, you know because their they're tr- they're, film is always um you know, your, your, your taste varies from person to person. Like I I can't go out and make a movie and assume all people are going to like it or all people are going to hate it. I even have films I've worked on that I don't like and other people love, you know? So it's like, everybody's got their own taste and vibe. And, and so that's what happens when you go to these festivals and you watch, like I've gone to festivals, my films were in and I've almost gone to every single film that I could possibly go to and you get such a range, but there's always something Usually in a film festival, there's always going to be something unique or something specific about it that sticks in your head, you know. And, and so for that, I'm always you know, grateful. Well,
1: oh, no, so am I. And for listeners, if you ever have a chance to go to a film festival, go. I mean, it's it, a lot of them vary in how many days. Some of them go for two days. Some go for a whole week. And yeah it is an experience and try to take in not just the features, but the shorts too. And the documentaries and right. It, it's wonderful to see the work. And again, not everything, some things are like five minutes long. Some things are 20 minutes long. Some things are two hours long. So there's, there's something there for everybody, but it is, it is. I, my wife goes with me and we both just really enjoy it.
0: Oh, good, good. Yeah. It's a nice communal thing and people that love film. And <clears throat> I mean, I personally, <clears throat> excuse me, I personally love them because it is an area where the filmmaker gets a chance to interact more with the audience that's, that's experiencing their project, you know? And so you get more feedback, you get, you know, you get, um, just discourse around what you, you've done. And sometimes the film festivals for the filmmakers, like with me, you release the film prior to it being locked off, which means it's prior necessarily to it being completely finished. So sometimes you can go to some festivals and <clears throat> you might hear a, a certain issue with it or a, <clears throat> something that didn't connect to the audience and it gives you an opportunity to maybe fix it a little bit for your your your, main, your mass release.
1: That's good. <clears throat> and it's, that's one of the things I think people don't realize is how much you, the filmmaker, are getting out of the experience too. And also a chance to they get, they get that unfettered constructive criticism, you know, where, you know, you're literally talking yeah. to the target audience and finding out what's working and not working. And so on. But a lot of times you're dealing with people who they're nice. You know, your friends are always going to tell you, Oh, it's beautiful. And, but your true friends will tell you, you know, Michael, it's, it's really good. But this, you know, th- those are the hard ones to find.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, but also you're right. And, and, obviously you have to go there with a little bit of that, that grain of salt and understand that people have watched your film or not, because you're going to come up to your face and go, that sucked, you know? <laughs> but what does, does occur is that if you sit in your film and you sit in the back, particularly when people don't know who you are and they're there and you can pay attention to the reactions, the organic reactions that the audience supply at a given place, whether they laugh, whether they cried, whether there was a, you know, an audible sigh or whatever it is, you can like, that's what I'll do sometimes is I'll sit in the back there and I'm just, paying attention to key moments in a film that I've done that I'm hoping is was going to get some sort of a reaction. I've had times where I thought something was really funny and nobody laughs. You know, so you go, okay, maybe I should take that. <laughs> it's not really quite worth it.
1: That's true. and you get, you get that nice test audience. And and speaking of films, when you were growing up, what were some of the films that you enjoyed? You know, like one, pick, like, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about one or two when you were growing up that really – Affected you and what you wanted to do down the road.
0: Well, as a kid, even though I admittedly, as a very young young kid, got interested in in films that you wouldn't think a kid would get into, just because I had just a, a, I just loved trying to understand why film worked. So there were certain artists at the time that most ten year olds weren't into, like Tarkovsky and Antonioni and Fellini, <laughs> which I actually would get absorbed into their films, even though I didn't understand them half the time. But there were two genres specifically as a kid that just inspired me to want to make movies, and that was monster movies and kung fu movies, right? And and when I say these films, like uh, like general kids would go, yeah, I love monster movies, I love kung fu. You no, know, this is like I would see what the movie is, and I would go out and seek out whatever I could find to read about it, or the filmmakers, or try to understand how they made it, and then I would go back and watch it again. And watching my brother and I saw. godzilla versus the smog monster was the first godzilla movie i ever saw we must have saw it six or seven times um seventh voyage of sinbad was a big big influence on me because ray which introduced me to ray harryhausen and 20 million miles to earth and these from Twenty Thousand fathoms it came from beneath the sea etc he opened my eyes up to the the what one could do with a tiny little uh latex you know um creation and turn it into this giant massive monster that threatens the world. And, um, and that was actually what my first, I thought I was going to be as a, as a a filmmaker was, I thought I was going to be an animator. I was thought, okay, this is going to be the new thing. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do all these cool special effects with stop motion animation. (laughs) That that was my interest. And I started making movies that way. I would had a super eight camera. Um, I would go out with, which is ironic. I would go out with these Godzilla toys my brother and I would find in, um, In San Francisco, a good friend of ours, uh, a guy named August Rigoni, uh, which had shown us, uh, who's now, if you look him him up, he's he's like the Godzilla expert, but he uh, showed us these stores that we could go buy these toys, so we'd go buy these vinyl Godzilla toys for like $5, they would be in a big bin, and we'd go, and I'd take them home, and I'd make a movie with them, and I'd blow them up and light them on fire. And today, when you go on eBay and you look these exact same toys up, they're all selling from anywhere from 300 to $3,000. So I was like, "Going, those are the most expensive movies I ever made. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I think the Harryhausen door opened up to other aspects of, of filmmaking for me, from the directing to the writing to the acting, because uh, I started making my own movies. And of course, I had to act in them. So, you know, I got got bit by that bug. And, and, uh, when I had to write the scripts, I just actually found a script to, I think my second, second film that I made, it was, I made it when I was 12, 13, and I would write full scripts. I had two script books. I remember at the time and I learned how to write scripts. Now they were terribly written and the format wasn't correct, but there were scripts that we followed and went and shot the movie. So, um, I would say Ray Harryhausen was a big influence. And then on the Kung Fu side of it, um you know Bruce Lee obviously as a as a human being really inspired me um but then everything that came out of my trying to go see Bruce Lee for instance you know we were, I think we may talk about the Bruce stuff you know there was a whole period of at least a, a decade after Bruce Lee passed away where there were these movies that would emulate and imitate and and uh, you know follow his his what they would perceive as his path or or his his um, style or his, his uh, personality, whatever it might be. And, and um, these movies, sometimes I would get sucked into thinking they were his movies or thinking they were movies that he somehow had a relationship to. And, um, but it, and at first it was sort of a little disorienting, but as, a, as time went by, I really became fascinated by these films and how one human being, one man could inspire so many um, imitators. So anyways, a, a long story to say that Kung Fu movies and monster films were definitely my uh, my genesis of my filmmaking love and Westerns to some degree too at that point. I love them now, but it took me a little while for them to sort of catch up into the fold.
1: I will tell you, if, um, when you talk about um, Ray Harryhausen, of course, I, I love Ray Harryhausen's work and I'm always amazed when he's, with his craft, how he is to get those creations of his, so much character, so 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 much... um. Emotion out of it, and people look at it, it's just—it's mm. just a figure. But no, it's just the way he was able to manipulate it and do it, frame by frame. It's just—it's just, it, it's just yeah. amazing.
0: It's a daunt, it was a daunting thought to me, you know, that 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 the way when you would watch him or anybody, Will O'Brien or whoever it might be, when you watch them do how they just move it, just a tiny bit, and it's not just that movement of that little tiny bit, but you're thinking there's got to be a direction. You can't, you're not just moving it for the sake of moving. You're, you're about to curl the fingers a certain way, or you're about to have the head maybe recoil in reaction to something. And, and that kind of forethought. And I just, I would, I would love to have seen his, his notes on how he, how he came, you know, came up with his work process. Um, I actually met him several times as a kid. I I stood in Limear for hours to see Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger because he was there at the screening of it. Um, But uh, yeah, just a huge inspiration, still is to me. You know, even if I'm not necessarily doing stop motion animation, it's that sort of precision and that passion he had that just still inspires me.
1: I, th- I think he inspires a, a ton of filmmakers, and for so many different genres that people don't realize. And it's just because I think he's such a creative force. I mean, I, I think I don't, I don't think enough is good enough good is ever said about him.
0: Yeah, no, no. I, and I'm in fact, just to, I'm not a big like toy collector or anything like that. But it, this this company called X Plus put out or just putting out now these releases of these film accurate vinyl figures from his most notable movies. And I picked up a Cyclops and an mirror and a, a Redosaurus from the Beast of Twenty Thousand Fathoms just because I, you know, again that it's a, it's a thing that inspires. Like I go into my office to work and sometimes I can just look up on the shelf and there are these creatures that you know stimulated my imagination as a kid and and uh <laughs> so i bought some toys
1: well i'll say i saw I've, I've seen what you're talking about on and for listeners he gave you the company name and everything you can search it and see exactly what they look like and they look breathtaking and and at the price level that i wouldn't consider them toys they're definitely collectibles they're, they're it's they're not Correct.
0: cheap yeah they are <laughs> Right, they're very expensive. Yeah, I, I I say toys probably just because of my uh, my lack of being in that field. But yeah, they um they are definitely uh, works of art.
1: And I and I think that's a, but of course people that don't realize what we're looking at would say, oh, it's just a toy. Why did you pay so much money for that? And not realizing the the past history of the um the work and stuff like that, where where it's different. Yeah. Now, you went into acting. And from my understanding, and directing, and all this stuff. But when you went into acting, uh, something I read on IMDb. I want to verify if this is true or not. But you took acting lessons with the same teacher with Charlize Theron.
0: Yeah, that. I mean, we were. That was my first acting class I was ever in. But I was in acting school with her um, in Los Angeles. Uh, this was around the time she'd already done a couple of movies, but she still, at that point, wasn't sort of the household name that she is now. She'd done. Uh, the, the Tom Hanks movie. She was, I think she was actually just doing, when I met her, just doing the, um, the one with Al Pacino, uh, The Devil's Advocate. And uh, so, yeah, we went to, we went to, in fact, my very first scene that I put up, and it was funny because I remember going to the school and I was I kind of, the reason I went to this acting, uh, this acting school was because I'd been doing it for a little while, but I just wanted to be, in front of people that I had admiration for. And there was a lot of notable celebrities that would come in and actors that would come in and directors to, to the class. And I knew if I could get in front of them and, and perform that I would be more prepared when I had to go to auditions at, and, you know, at, at studios, et cetera. And uh, she at the time was like the name, of her name was just getting out there. And I was like, oh, she's the next thing, she's the next big thing. So I was already going, oh God, you know, here's, here's another person I'm going to have to get in front of. And the very first scene I had to do was with her. <laughs> I was like, "Well, I guess it's probably easier because I'm in the scene with her, so I'm not have to worry about her watching me."
1: Uh, you talk about trial by fire, so to speak, or, t- or jumping into the deep end of the pool. Um, oh yeah, come yeah. in, go go right, up, go up, um, go out, um, do an acting scene you're going to have with Charlize. Go, go for it. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, uh, we did uh, the Misfits.
1: She, I was doing Clark Gable's part, and she was doing uh, Marilyn Monroe so what, is, what was she like, you know, back then and everything? I'm not sure if you still... Oh, she was
0: great. She was a lot, just a normal, you know, fun, you know. The great thing about it is that when and, and there's classes, you're not just in class. You get together before you put on the scenes and you hang out and you talk and you work on, you know, you get a chance to work together and, and rehearse. And, you know, um, and uh, it was great, it's, you know, it's a, especially in hindsight. I mean, it wasn't even about... Like now, looking back and going, oh, I you know did scenes and work with Charlize Star- there Even at that time, it was like I liked her work ethic, and I was, you know, she was very prepared. You know, we we were we were um, sometimes people when they do the scenes from the movies, they kind of like generically write them down, and she had see- she sought out the, the actual script and tried to photocopy the actual script, and so it was good. I just felt like she was really putting in her um, putting in her efforts. You know, she wasn't just trying to walk through it. She really wanted to learn,
1: and, and I think it shows. In and her work. She's not okay. She's all right. She's an okay. Axis. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's worked for her. you know whatever she's doing is definitely working for her. And something you both have in common, I think, is is your work ethic, not just in professionally, but also in physically. You know, because you do martial arts, um, and, and she seems to always be in excellent physical shape to where you can believe yeah. a lot of the stuff that she does.
0: Yeah, yeah, she definitely doesn't age that girl.
1: That that is true. And um one other thing I wanted to ask you but that was IMDB trivia. I thought this was just this is just very interesting. And I don't know if you know her No,
0: okay. What did they say? What did they say?
1: They said you were the body model for Charlton Heston for Planet of the Apes reissue poster. <laughs>
0: okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I that is true. Um the 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 when you see the um the redo of the, the poster that's been out for I don't know, you know, over a decade now, but the guy kneeling down being Heston and then there's a horse and, and some of the, the incarnations of the poster. And then there's a, a woman there with the horse that was actually me on the ground. That was my horse. And that was my ex, my ex, uh, girlfriend <laughs> in the picture. So the, uh, that was, uh, and it was shot in my backyard. But uh, yes, that was me. And what was funny is that I was directing a movie back in uh, was it was two thousand eight, two thousand yeah, about two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And I was out in Wisconsin, and, and I ended up doing it with Eric Stoltz. But at the time, we were in consideration with uh, Matthew Modine, and so I got on the phone with him while I was out there because he was just kind of curious to talk about what was going on. And he goes, and he said kind of what you said. He said, he goes, wait a minute. I was reading on IMDb that you were the body double for Charlton Heston. And you seem a little bit too young to be his body. Double. I said, yeah, let me explain. <laughs> yeah, I think Charlton Heston was already passed away by the time we shot that.
1: And the film you're talking about with Eric Stoltz, would that be Fort McCoy?
0: Correct. Yes.
1: Because I think you co-directed that, if I remember correctly. Well, let's let's
0: put it this way. I don't talk about it too much, but uh, I'll just say this: I've never co-directed in my life. I've had films I've done where people later decided that they liked the movie so much they want to put their names on it. But like, <laughs> we'll we'll go that we'll go that far at least,
1: and we'll, we'll let it sit there. I think I think that talks about that. <laughs> there you go. I, I try not to. I try not to. i um, drum up drama, you know. And to me, it's just it's no, just no, no, it's okay. I,
0: I think it's it's fine. I don't mind. I actually don't mind. Standing up for you know myself with this you know i mean there's been you know i can tell you in this business there are people that sometimes probably and i understand we all have insecurities and i can't cast the motivation for certain people or why they do certain things but sometimes people i think feel like oh i'm never gonna get another shot at this so i might as well you know millie vanillie and you know and i i can say that some people, certain people will even not direct a movie and go on the film festival circuit and and actually have seminars on how to direct a movie, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, it, I don't personally myself, I, I, I can't even there's never even been an urge to want to put my name on something in any sort of a way unless I didn't earn it, not because you know, we don't all want to move up in our ranks. And sometimes we don't, it's not that we don't want to say, Hey, yeah, I've I've got experience. So come put me in your, your movie. When maybe our experience is not like I one time lied about being a, uh, a a really good surfer for a commercial that I ended up booking, but I was terrible at surfing at the time. And so there are those kind of things we do, but when it comes to credits and, and you know, I would never want my name on as a writer for something. I didn't write, I would never want my name on as a director for something I didn't direct or co-direct. Um, and so uh, you know I think that I think it's important for a lot of and I know this that, listen that's not the only time it's happened I'm not the only person it's happened to I've know several people this happened to and I think I think there's a way to just say you know what I'll tell you something I've never co-directed in my life I've had some issues after directing a movie where people wanted to uh, maybe share the uh, glory a little bit but but aside from that um, I think I, and I would co-direct I don't have a problem with it I think it could be an, I've, I've actually, uh, toyed with the idea a couple of times but i've never i've never done it in fact uh, clint howard and i were talking about co-directing a movie together that he 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 uh, wrote so i'm always on, on game for it. but i will finish this off by saying that you know i don't know how somebody could go through uh, you know let me, let me you can't like for instance as a director anybody who understands directing the amount of preparation you do the amount of actual work you do on set where you don't sleep and you gotta prep for the next day. And when you're finally done with one day and your head's all shaken up, you're you're sitting there prepping for the next day and that you go out there early and you try to find locations that are gonna work for the light or work for the look or gonna work for just production logistics. Like you, you go, I love this space, but this is 30 miles from the location the day before, which we need. So it's not, it's going to be too cost. The effectiveness of driving there isn't going to work. So we got to find some, you know, there's so many dynamics that go into making a movie. You don't think about and to have anybody or in your, your gut, like I could not ever walk out of a movie, where, even if I wrote it or acted in it or whatever and think to myself, you know what, that was a pretty good movie. So I'm going to just slap my name on here. Cause it's just like, you just know you have to, especially with directing, maybe with, I don't know, it's hard to say, even with writing. I mean, there's nothing really that you'd want to put your name on that that you didn't do. So, yeah, there you go. You got a little out of me there. But uh, I'll just say that I think this business is tough. And I think that for anybody that, I don't mean tough like digging a ditch or working in a coal mine. I think that's way harder. But it can be tough in the sense of what you deal with emotionally sometimes and the egos that you run into. You know, and those egos are sometimes giant or they're sometimes fractured. And in either case, you know, you can usually have problems with them.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, so talking about it as a director, I think you're talking about the planning stage. It's almost like each movie is a game of chess where you have to plan out what you're going to do ahead of time in order to get to a, your goal at the end, which, you know, so so it takes a lot of steps into those camp and account.
0: Yeah. And, and that, and, and, and there are exceptions to that. In fact, I have an example. The movie I did bring me the head of Lance Hendrickson was the exact opposite. It was, It was, in fact, the intention from the very beginning was not to plan anything out. I just had specific little micro-elements that were planned because I wanted to throw the actors off because I wanted everything as organic and as real as possible. But otherwise, it was like we didn't know, kind of, I don't know if you know who Robert Altman is, but Robert Altman had a little bit of a style where they would start filming. He'd have multiple cameras, and during the performances, he would see something he liked, and he would, like, nudge over to the camera guy to pan over to that, or... He would go to the sound guy, turn up the sound on those guys, and put it down on these guys. You know, so he was very improvisational that way. And, excuse me. And sometimes you can do that with a film, but for the most part, generally speaking, even when that is the creative construct of the film, the actual planning of the film, because you're paying money to people, you're traveling, you're out for long hours, it's got to be planned. You know.
1: Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. And and I think those type of films. I, I love Rob, Robert Altman's films also a lot of his work. Um, it, it's, it's, it takes a, a, a certain type of create of creative mind in order to pull those off effectively. Cause it's not something you can just wing it. You have to know where to, like you said, lower the mic, where to pan the camera, where you're all, you got to watch the whole thing, your peripheral vision. You can't be focused on just one part. You got to take in the whole field.
0: And some, and you know, though, to be, in all honesty, every director has a different style, right? I mean, there's some, I know some directors and some fairly prominent ones that I've, I know who know very little about the camera. You know, they're like, their focus is mainly with the actor and the performance, and they'll usually lean on their DP, for instance, help me find a way to shoot this correctly. For me, because photography has been such a big part of my, my life and my interests, that the camera to me is like a key component. In fact, you know, even though I've been an actor my whole life, you know, you would, I, I tend to think more visually how I want something to work. And, you know, even though I may have a performance direction I'm hoping for, I don't like to put that usually on the actors ahead of time. I like to see if they'll find it themselves naturally. And then if it doesn't really go that way naturally, you know, and so I'm, I tend, when I direct, I tend to think a lot more visually, like where's my light coming from? Do I like their placement of the actors? Do I like one closer to camera, one further away? you know, I mean, there's so many dynamics to think about that would go on forever, but with the performance, I'm more about just listening. And, and sometimes I get things that I'm not even expecting. Like I've, I've used my, as you probably know, I've used my grandmother in a number of movies and I used her in, uh, Appleseed, the last movie, um, the last film that I had that came out. And, um, she is because she has dementia, you know, when I stick her in a movie, even though she's fully on board going, yeah, let's, let's, I'll come do whatever you want me to do. She's Can still get lost in it, so she becomes a. She becomes the story. She becomes caught up in what the story is, and so you never know what you're going to get out of her. So, um, and you know, we can talk about when we if we talk about that movie, but but um, that that moment is an example of you just got to find it at that moment, you know, and just go with it.
1: Oh, we will be talking about that movie, and 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 for those wondering, your grandmother is um, Lois Stewart. Yes, and I remember what what we'll talk about. I think it's God's ear god's ears where yes. she played mall and she was so wonderful in that role i mean it's just when she comes in and and oh thank you and is that was that her first role
0: ever First. well if you don't count my super eight movies as a kid <laughs> that was her first role. and uh yeah that was her, her, her that was my first movie actually as a director so um yes that was uh, that was it that was her first role
1: oh what what you talk about talent that's that's just there. I mean, she just. We'll get to God's earth and I mean God's Earth, God's ear in a minute. But it was just oh, that that she was wonderful in there. Just before yeah, we get to you. all your stuff in directing, um, talk a little bit yeah. about a couple of things that you did acting. I mean, you've done a lot of acting. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm just I'm picking and choosing. But there's certain things you want to bring up. Feel free to throw them out okay. there. But the first movie I ever saw, knowingly that you were in it, when I was prepping. For all this was Fist of Iron. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Fist of Iron. Fist of Iron followed. I had done three films for PM Entertainment prior to that. I did um, Final Impact with uh, Lorenzo Lamas. I did Street Crimes with Dennis Farina, and then I did To Be the Best with Martin Cove. And then Fist of Iron followed up about a couple of years afterwards. And the director of Fist of Iron used to work for PM Entertainment. So he, that's how he'd, he'd come to me and he said, Hey, you know, I'd never worked with him before. He was, you know, he just worked with them as a, a director, but he had this movie. And I, I kind of I saw, I said, Look, there's this, I, I, I was hesitant to do it at first because I was seeing this tendency already where every movie I was doing, I was getting in the ring, getting in the ring, fighting in the ring. And I was like, I don't want to overdo this. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, I'm always glad to be working and making money, but that's just not where my my acting head was at the moment. So, but I like what I like the sort of gentleness of the script. It's funny to say about a martial arts film with a lot of fighting, there was still this sort of gentle heart to it with this relationship between uh, my character and Sam Jones and Eric Lee. And, and it was, it was more playful. It wasn't as much about, I mean, somebody does die in the film, but it wasn't about guys running around with guns, et cetera, et cetera, which I've been, which I've been kind of doing a lot of. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this one. And, um, I always, I always look at it as like the first action adventure film shot in Malibu, you know?
1: And, and for I wondering, it basically, it's, it's like, um, underground fighting in a rich place where the people are betting and stuff like that. Um, and yeah. And, yeah. and your friend, um, talks you into it. It's, and obviously something bad happens to him and then it becomes like a revenge story and you have to get trained in order to pull it off. And as you said, um, Eric Lee and Samuel J. Jones play the guys that train you, and the relationship the three of you have is 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 really cool. I mean, I, I find those scenes to be the, some of the best scenes. The way that the three of you guys all work off each other, and Samuel Jones looks like a freaking tank. I mean, he's just oh, yeah. huge man.
0: I love Sam man. He was great. He yeah, uh, yeah. That that's it. That was it. It was that relationship that I really liked, and I didn't even know how it was going to come to fruition because I had, I'd never worked with the, I've worked with Eric as a, he'd been a fight choreographer on a number of films I had done, but I'd never worked with Sam before. Of course I knew him from Flash Gordon and, you know, um, and uh, what was it? My Chauffeur and <laughs> a couple other movies. Um, but he, he was uh, those two. I knew once we were doing it, once we were on set there, it was, it was going to be something special. And um, it's funny while we were doing those sequences, we were right across the street from a uh, Nick Nolte's house. So he would come over sometimes and, Watch this film. I was like Nick Nolte's watching
1: me fight. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine him just sitting there smoking a cigarette, just like, "Okay, guys, let's let's, let's see what
0: definitely
1: you got." It. That was pretty much it. <laughs> so uh, it's it's one of those things. that Obviously, you, you just he'd be that way, and I, it was just guessing, and then that's the way he was. But you, the big bad in this movie, I mean, uh, was what? Matthias Hughes? Matthias. Yes,
0: Matthias. Matthias funny thing about him was i'd seen him and you know i come in peace with Dolph and a couple other things and i was like oh this guy's gonna be a jerk he's playing the bad guy oh god this guy looks like he's gonna be a real ego he's gonna you know i I kept preparing myself just because i was seeing him in so many movies like oh boy and he showed up he was the nicest coolest guy ever and it was like we do our, our fight scenes and i would I would um, like I go okay. I come here. I'm gonna throw this punch here. I'm gonna throw it. He goes, oh careful because I got a little bit. I'm sore right here, so don't hit me, don't hit me. Watch the hair. Sometimes the hair little thing comes out of there. I'm like going, Jesus, you're like this giant monster, and I can't even touch you. <laughs> and we did, but he was great. I love that guy. Follow him on Instagram. He's he's, he's a character. He's like Tarzan. He like lives out in somewhere in South America, I think, somewhere with his wife, and they, they have like monkeys on their property and everything. It's,
1: it's nuts. For for those who haven't seen it, 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 his character, Victor, Victor the Destroyer. I mean, his name is the Destroyer. He looks like something from the the World Wrestling Federation brought in to fight you, and he's playing up to the crowd and all that stuff. So it's almost like you're fighting a living cartoon character, villain. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he he, he is. He is. I mean, he's not even, I don't think, a trained fighter for as often as that guy gets to fight in movies he's a he's an athlete you know and he's, he's a conditioned really highly conditioned athlete i mean you see him now I don't, i'm not sure how old he is he's, i think he's in the 60s if i'm not mistaken but the guy's just constantly in shape you know
1: well it's sort of like you know, like yourself there's there's certain people that are always constantly you know working out and keeping you know, that it's, it's just the lifestyle
0: yeah yeah it's true i mean I'm, i guess i'm hope to be the same way because I I definitely think that way I've always as a kid you know 13 years old I started working out doing martial arts and I was like okay I'm gonna never stop this I gotta keep this up so even when I'm 80 I'm still like throwing kicks and punches and lifting weights
1: now I'm only bringing this up because it's my even though we're movie podcast this is one of my wife's favorite TV shows and one of mine too but you were in Diagnosed Murder for an episode
0: (laughs) yes I did that was actually a fun episode I remember that one well
1: what was it like working the D- with them with Dick Van Dyke and
0: stuff?
1: Well, yeah, once again, that was in
0: Malibu also. We shot that in Malibu. Um, There's a couple of it was interesting because um, I worked with Dick Van Dyke and his son. They were both there. And, you know, they, they would, Dick Van Dyke at that time was, he had like a certain restriction in time. So they would, had to work kind of quickly because they only have, could have him for, not because he was that well, way. just because it was his age or whatever the agents had. They could only be on separate four hours or five hours or whatever it was. So we had to usually go through it kind of quick, but he was a really nice guy and it was a lot of fun to, to work with. And I, you know, you when you work with people like that, that are legends in the business and you're just like doing scenes with them, I, there's just, even as me, there's certain people that stick out of my head him being one of them where you're just going, Oh my God, I'm working with big man dyke right now. You know I mean? Mary Poppins, and you know, you're going back and forth. So that was fun. Plus Lawrence Hilton Jacobs from Welcome Back, Cotter was in it, and then working with him, and then um, and Charlie, uh, uh, Charlie, uh, my blanket on Charlie's last name, Charlie and I actually ended up working on a movie last year together that ended up never getting released, uh, a western. But I hadn't worked with him since since that show. But uh, he was from 18 again with uh, uh, George oh. Burns. I know you told me he but, does a lot of great.
1: voice acting. He does a lot of voice acting now. Yes. Oh dang. Yes. It. Yes, yes.
0: Oh. I, Oh well I think, I think it's the bee, the bee on like the honey bee, the honey nut Cheerios bee or something. <laughs> so yeah, he's great. He's a great guy.
1: Yeah, he's he's had some um, health issues or whatever that he's overcome and um from what I've yeah, read I and stuff. Yeah. And oh yeah. God bless him, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's one that always looks way younger than he actually is. You know, it's, it's it's he's one of those people blessed with um the youthful looks.
0: Yeah, and it's vitality, you know what I mean? I, I realized you know, you can, it's good to work out. It's good to, you know, eat well and keep your, you know, w- there's a lot certain physical things that are important, but it's your vitality inside can really make a difference. You know, it's like that. It, first off, it motivates everything. You know, your, your vitality for life is what motivates you. Like you're every morning you get up and you're like, I've got to go to the gym or oh, got to eat this food or something. It's eventually it's just going to have a dead end, you know, but when you're like, filled with vitality and, and a zest for life. And Charlie has that, you know, so regardless of what he might do, I don't know what he does for workouts or not. It's just his natural vitality and zest for living that, that keeps him young.
1: Oh, well, I think it also, if you too, I mean, cause you're, you're a couple of years older than me, but you, you look like 10 years younger than me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I listen, my grandmother's ninety nine, so you know, it's and my, my, my great aunt died at hundred and nine, so I gotta I gotta attribute some of it to the luck of the genes.
1: Just to make so she's ninety nine, which means when we get the guns here, she was in her eighties when she made her professional debut.
0: Yeah, that was yeah, that was like two two thousand seven. So it was, yeah, it was uh what my sport my math screwed up like fourteen years ago, yeah.
1: Yeah, so her mid eight it's just it makes it even more wonderful. I mean, when we get oh. I'm bringing this one up. Yes.
0: And and it's, you know, and that was before her dementia set in. So there she was like memorizing lines. She was a little more focused. You can watch, you watch my grandmother. I've used her in a number of movies. I used her in that movie. I used her in one called Seeking Dolly Parton. Mm -hmm. Um, I I put together a a really super low budget film that I produced uh, called Catfish Blues that she plays one of the leads in, which is it's a very endearing movie. If you get a chance to see it, it's, it's super low. It's the lowest budget movie I ever did, but it's like the heart of it. it was probably the largest park we ever had in a movie. And then uh, um, she's in the Sugar Moon Tribe that's coming out. And then uh, of course Appleseed. So she's had this progression, but it was Catfish Blues when I was working with her, when I realized she couldn't remember lines anymore. And I was going, what's going on? And I realized it was when her memory started to go. Um, something that was happening actually to Rance too, when we were doing Appleseed. But, um, you just, you know, that's where you, as a director, you learn to, uh, you know, really work with your actors and your performers and, and say, okay, this is the limitation. Let's make the most out of this. My grandmother on the subject of her, she's just such a dynamic personality by herself that it was like, I never had to write for her. Anyway, just just talk grandma, just talk.
1: (laughs) And I think that's what comes off so natural in her performances because it was all natural. Um, but speaking of something that might be a little unnatural in a sense with the sound effects, U.S. Seals 2.
0: <laughs> <A> nice segue.
1: <laughs> because that thing, it's martial arts all over the place, and and the sound effects, it it, it feels like I'm in a video game. <laughs> I mean, it goes yeah. all out. You know what?
0: That was that was listen. That was Isaac Florentine, a wonderful man. I love Isaac. That was his his style i had no idea when we were shooting it that was his his style because i'd never watched the power Rangers, so i didn't even you know i'd never seen it, which is kind of what he was rolling off of and um and uh he just you know so when i i didn't even notice it actually until we went i was sitting in on the editing one time i was with him and we were when he was with his editor and she was cutting it and i started hearing the sound i was going I have this temp sound. I to you, no, that's, that's the sound effects, Michael, that's, that's it. I'm going, but it's I go, but my eyes went to the left and it made a sound. <laughs> He's like, yes, it's dramatic. And I'm like going, I, I don't know. So I would give him a hard time about it. And then when we went to the screening uh, in Hollywood, you know, it was a packed theater. I remember Jean-Claude Van Damme was there. I mean, it was like, a, you know, there was a bunch of people there. And the, the the sound effects would go would go off, and people would laugh and cheer because they were getting into the like ridiculousness of it. But then, as we came out of the theater, Isaac first thing he did was walk in and goes, "Michael, see, they loved it." <laughs> <laughs> so I went, "Okay, Isaac, they loved it. I get it. Whatever, I'm okay. I'm rolling with it now." You know, you're cutting a guy in
1: half. You know, I guess with the sword, so you can do whatever you want. I, I just remember when I was watching it, what you said that scene where like people are just moving their hands, and you hear. What? It was just or like you said, well you just move yeah. your eyes one direction and it was just the use of sound effects and then once once you realize Okay, just just let it go. Let let the movie just flow over you and don't don't try to use logic about why these sound effects are coming this way and it and, and it just makes it fun. And it it's a lot of different fight scenes in there and um Karen, yeah, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. No no, you're right. It's a, there's a lot. In fact it was a very um the 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 shift there's a sh- there's a different tone and and, and um, uh, idea of choreography specifically from that film if you watch any of the first handful of films I did that were fight films fist of iron etc there was a very uh, du- you know done by completely different people there's a, a different rhythm there's a different, style to those fights then when you jump over into the u.s seals which was andy chang who was jackie chan's stuntman for a long time and worked with the with chan's group you know it's a whole different vibe you know it's a very and it was like for me most of the guys that were were doing it like dan southworth and mitch Gould and hakeem alston they were pretty used to it they'd been on power rangers and they were they were used to that wirework style that i wasn't so for me, I was having to re-educate myself, even with the, within the um, the way that you know they had these poses that they wanted to do at the end, and and the rhythm was different. Instead of it was like punch, 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 kick. It was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, there's a, a different kind of rhythm that was going on, and it was it was it was great because I loved learning and I loved challenging myself. But um, it was definitely a shift. You watch, let's say, put on uh, To Be the Best, and then watch U.S. Seals Two just from the perspective of watching how the choreography is different. You'll see what I mean.
1: And and that's one of the things I love about watching action films, particularly the martial arts films is the, is the choreography of different ones, which I believe you, you know, obviously you do too. And it's just, even though you, even though you're getting, when I'm listening to, when I was watching them with Kung Fu theater, you know, you're getting the bad dubbing, but you're not watching a Kung Fu movie for the dubbing you're watching it for the scenes and that 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 translates regardless of language and it's just amazing the skill level that the performers the actors are able to do in those films and yeah and that's it's always nice when you get you see these different styles and different techniques and different choreographers doing different um creative work with it 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 really is cool
0: yeah i mean there's you when when you really get into a an action film as a filmmaker as somebody who's creative you know you're finding a personality for the fight the fight scenes. you know you want them to have a personality you know you watch when you watch john wick movies that's why people go oh this is like a john wick or this is a john wick style because they found the personality and they stuck with it and they utilized it you know and that's that's always true of the most successful films because you walk away whether you love the film or hate it but there was something about it that stuck in your brain you know and that's certain style and that's uh, that's important you know even with action you know you're telling your, your your narrative you're telling your story here's act one act two act three when the dog gets killed and you're going whatever it might be right but then there's the story you're telling as as, as the fighters and uh, excuse me through the the, the the actual choreography of the action you know yeah. maybe the, the first you watch John Wick's character like his maybe his aggression elevates through the story. You know, the fight scenes are more he's you know, he starts off maybe being a little quicker with his death, killing people by the end of it he's like taking his time, you know. So anyways I'm just making a point that you're right. You can you get a really good action film director, action film makers, the choreographers, et cetera, and the actors. You you can tend to like a film like The Raid, it's a great example. Oh. Um Ong Bak, you know, I mean, there's some certain more modern films that have just some great personality and, and, and fight choreography. I mean, even, you know, what stands out with, with Bruce Lee films today, too, is that there is some some really stand out specifically in Fist of Fury and uh, *and of the Dragon. I think that still, you know, work <laughs>
1: I think they're going to work forever, you know. But everything changes, I and mean, who knows what fifty years from now what people would consider it work. But I think True. those are timeless because they've held up for fifty years already, and you know, just about.
0: Well, you know what? Everything we're doing is ephemeral. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, you know, if you think about, I mean, this is the this is why it's important. Like with this business, that you don't let it go to your head because everything that we're all doing today. Fifty years from now, as you said, people are going to be like, oh, those old guys, you know, those guys, ah, them, you know, whatever. Oh, now we're into, you know, X, Y, you know, so even the, the top, top guys today are going to be old hat one day, you know. Um, you know, there may be people that look back on it and go, I like to study Steven Spielberg, or I like to study, you know, whoever Tarantino or whoever it is. But at some point, these films will be like pushed into like they're classics. I understand that. That's what I'm saying. Is the films and I love the older movies. So when you get the Citizen Kane or the Third Man or you know uh, Eight and a Half or Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, my favorite movie of all time, there are going to be specific films that will probably stand out at least in certain groups as being just untouchable. You know, I mean, but but even like the Seven Samurai, today, it's going to have its core group of people that love it, but I you know the masses. You know, the people that go to to movies in a general, you know, just generally day to day is probably not as appealing to them, you know, just because it was it was a different sentiment. And uh, but technique wise, I mean, Kurosawa is like my number one favorite director. You know, I mean, the things that guy does, I wish I could be like him. You know, I mean, he just he can go from the action to the drama and everything in between.
1: And I think I agree with you because there's a lot there's a, a huge Generation of people now that refuse to watch really black and white movies, and then there's even the bigger group that does not want to watch silent movies. So there's there's already right. this this gap that's increasing with different things. And and, and yes, think, t- t- taste change uh, in the general group, but there's always going to be that core group that cares about the film history that's always going to go back and look at these things. But yeah, in the general audiences will probably be. Well
0: and, and, and yeah, but but there, and and it's not about like this being a stickler for tradition. I can just say that back back then there was an experimentation and a um almost a caution too with, with the filmmaking back then. You were dealing with film, you were dealing with larger cameras. There's a number of things that came into the play of making those those films that, that today isn't you know, you caught your phone and you're like ding 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 you're it around, I'll try this, okay quit do it again, do it again. You know, I mean there's there's elements that have been lost over time just because of technology. Um, but you can, I can tell you that some of the the best directors today, whether it's Spielberg, Tarantino, uh, you know, um, Scorsese, all of those guys, all of those guys are more inspired by those older directors, the directors that have long gone from now and the techniques that they used, you know, whether it's Scorsese using the setup, which is an old uh, Ryan film, Robert Ryan film that, that, For his inspiration for Raging Bull, which today people use Raging Bull as their inspiration for their boxing movie, right? So there's this passing on, whether you realize you're being passed, you know, this traditional filmmaking techniques and inspiration are being passed on or not. Uh, I always use the old films, like when I was doing Appleseed, because what I wanted to try to do is emulate a sort of more thoughtful, um, played out, um, like road trip, you know, I didn't want to do it a lot of frantic cutting. I wanted to think of how, I, and I and normally I do this with my, my, if I, if I had a style quote, unquote, I'm usually looking for how long can I hold a take? Not like in a unnatural in, in a natural way, but like, how, how can this angle or rather not just the angle, like locking up the camera, but how can I keep the camera rolling without having to rely on a cut to make this whole scene play out? Because sometimes when you have a, a camera just rolling and going, you get pulled into it for longer and deeper at times, then when it cuts, there's a little momentary like shifting of your eyes, you know, so you pull back out and I'm doing, I'm prepping a film right now that's a musical, not like a singing, dancing musical, it's about a music, a band, about a group. Um, and I'm trying to do each scene in one shot, uh, not as a gimmick, I'm not going to sit here and announce every scene is done in one shot, but it's because I know the rhythm of the film will play out better for me that way. So. That is something that I've learned or found I was connected to from the older films because they were not doing as much cutting. You know, you watch the older films partly because it's like more of a pain in the ass cut and set that camera up and turn it around and relight it where today you can just stop almost and just turn the camera around and you're ready to go. Um, anyway, so, so I agree. The, the older films, I think just from a standpoint of technique have some amazing, amazing, um, Style and attributes that we we just we're not aware unless we go back and watch them. You know, I only got into silent films as as a as a filmmaker and understanding what is involved in them in the last probably you know seven to eight years. Um, like Chaplin and Lloyd and, and Buster Keaton and, and um, you know Sergei Eisenstein. You know, I mean these guys that that you wouldn't think, well, oh, it's an old silent movie, but my God, when you're t- telling a whole movie without dialogue. You know, there's a special skill that you're you're relying on.
1: If you want to watch something that's really a, a, a treat, filmmaker-wise, Abel Gantz's Napoleon, the 1927 silent film, oh, incredible, incredible. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah, not which version? Not, what's that? Which version? Because I saw the five and a half oh, hour. I own
0: it. I actually own the most recent Blu-ray of it. And what's so incredible about that movie too is they were utilizing something ahead of time, which was the aspect ratio change. They were, they were finding different ways of using, because, you know, at that point in the, you know, we had basically one aspect ratio, four by three, you know, the one, three, three aspect ratio, which is the square. And we had yet to really start messing with different sizes to the frame. But in Napoleon, when the battle scenes would come on, they were doing this modified widescreen image that was just um, amazing. I mean, what a, what, a, what a mindset that was going on in the making of that film.
1: Yeah, and um, we, I, we just actually post- posted an episode recently, a review of it. Uh, another filmmaker, Joshua Kennedy and myself, and we talked about it. And it was – I saw it for the first time for that review. And um, and I sat – I did the whole five and a half hours in one day, you know, one sitting, just taking breaks yeah. during intermission. And it was just – as I said in that thing, it – a riveting experience of immersion pulling you into a film in in ways that you just never thought possible. And it, it's almost like VR before VR was ever even a concept was, was this man's vision Seems it to, to me.
0: You have yeah, colors that were, you know, not being, you know, utilized and, and implemented into the, you know, that, like I said, the, the aspect ratio, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's, I mean, yeah, and that's good. You saw, you saw the BFI one, I guess, right? The, the yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's they thank, thankfully they they really put it, brought it back to its original glory.
1: Oh yeah, that's, and I heard Netflix is working on making a, a restoration of a seven-hour version because originally it was a nine-hour film.
0: Um, yeah, I remember that? I've Only seen the one, the, the BFI version, you know, which <laughs> which would be incredible if it got even longer.
1: Oh, I know. So so, so, so people complain about the length of films nowadays. Just remember, I always tell them, it's not Napoleon. It's not the five, it's, the, you know, it's right, a nine you, hour film. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but you know what's funny is films have gotten longer, running times have gotten longer. And, and now with this recent, like in the last few or five, you know, few to five years, I was going to say, of, you know, with Netflix, et cetera, people are, are, watching series they want to see series they want to see the 10 episode hour long series and then they binge watch Mm -hmm. so they basically are watching a 10 hour movie so there's a a certain i I think it's interesting because i'm trying to like understand the psychology of it but films films and projects are getting longer so you know for me what's interesting is that we are we actually are having longer runner running time films and we've got this new interest in in series and TV series, you know, like not like in the traditional sense where it was one episode a week and you'd wait for whatchamacallit to come out the next week. It's they're kind of either running week to week in the, or like the case of I'm just going to pick up, you know, the, I guess the Falcon and the, the winter soldiers are a little different. They're kind of releasing them week by week, but there's a new interest in binge watching series. Anyway, you know, you wait for them all and you watch them all. So there, I think, I think the length of a, of a project is not really the issue, but there is something about, maybe how we like, I love longer films. Mm-hmm. I love it. I remember there was a lot of discussion over King Kong versus Godzilla when it came out, that it was the shortest of all the, the, the monster verse films. And they were, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were saying, Oh, you know, then you'd see people that are going, that's great. And other people are like, well, that's kind of sucks. I don't want to be the shortest, you know? And, and I personally, if it's a good movie, I'll sit there. Like I said, seven Samurai is my favorite movie. It's, you know, we're three hours long. So I, I don't mind the length of a movie. I mean, I, I don't know if I've, You gotta be prepared if it's seven hours. You better have your lunch with you and stuff. But um yeah.
1: I always look at it with movies and the length. As as long as it it fits the story you're trying to tell, whether it's twenty minutes, two hours, four hours, whatever, as long as the story is being is effective, I'm good. It's when it's Right. Pacing is off and it's being padded for and you can sense that for me, like it's being padded for padding's sake. That's when I get a little annoyed. I'm like, yeah, you, you could have edited that out a little bit. You could have made that a little more streamlined or, you know, you, you've been saying the right. same point over and, and over.
0: And I agree with you. In fact, I, I was doing a movie once. I was directing a film. Um, I didn't write it. And the producers came up to me and they said, they said, well, we need to get this at 97 minutes. And I said, OK, well, wait a minute. That's like the most unnatural thing I've ever heard. So you're saying you specifically know 97 minutes. If that's your focus, then your focus is not is the movie good or not, you're just wanting to reach a, a criteria, you know, this criteria of time. And I go, I can't, I can't work that way. It might be shorter, it might be longer, but it's going to be whatever it feels. And I, and I may be wrong. People might go, this feels long, or this feels too short. I get it, but that's the risk you take as a filmmaker. You go, I right. as I know, I've made films where I was like later. Went, mm, I wish I had taken a little bit more out. Or others where I went, oh, I wish I'd put that scene in, you know? Um, and that, that's one of my probably one of my best or slash worst traits as a filmmaker is like right at the very end when I'm about to lock the edit, which is when you lock an edit, it's where you basically don't change any more cuts. Now you're doing the color correction, you're doing the sound mixing, you're adding the music. So you can't really change this. I mean, in big movies, you can't all the time because they, they'll spend millions to open the film back up and do whatever they got to do. But um independent films like I do, once you lock it off, you got to kind of have agreed to lot. Lock- and I'm always like the night before, I'm like up late going, put it back in, put it- pull it back out, put it back in, <laughs> pull it back out, cut off that word, put it in that word. You know, or I'll, I'll find a, a line reading that was so much better than the one I thought that I was using and switch it and swap it. And uh, it's just, it's funny that way. But yeah, you know, anyways, you're right. I mean, it's all about the, the pacing. Like, like I said, the Seven Samurai for me goes quick and it's three and a half hours and i've sat through movies that were 80 minutes and i'm going what is and I'm going, when is i gotta stop you know mm.
1: and, and i think it's just if, if if you're interested in the stories being if you're just immersed into the story and it's just you just right. enjoying and the acting is going really well and everything is just hitting in all cylinders you're you're in for the ride yep. regardless of the length i mean the, the only thing you yep. might have to do is might have to use um uh, the, the bathroom or something, you know, but otherwise you're, you're, right, you're good right. to go. And that, that's the one nice thing about streaming or owning the physical media at home is that you can pause, do what you have to do and then come back. And, uh, and that kind of thing. In the theater, I always, I, I always, I, I try never to go there because you always hate to miss something, because you can't stop it. It's like, Oh, how much longer is this movie going to be? It's like, I, gotta go, but I don't want to miss, just no, my <laughs> yeah. luck. I'm going to miss the scene. You know, it's, it's always the scene, you know, whatever you know, it, it drives yeah. you nuts.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: But that's when you know you're watching a good film you like is when you're when you're actually making that fight. Where if you're watching a film you don't care, you're like oh I'm going.
0: <laughs> Correct. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it.
1: One thing I wanted to bring up, tag on what you talked about what trying to do in like in that next film you're doing, the musical or the, the film about the band, and trying to do in one take in different spots. When you were saying that, it reminded me so much of Twelve Angry Men with Sidney LeMay. Um, Mm -hmm. and that opening scene where all of them are walking into the courtroom and a lot of the scenes that he did where he allowed the actors to act and move around, even though it's all in one room, there's so much movement and things going around for your eyes to watch. I've watched that film more times than probably anybody normally should watch. And I'm always catching something different by... Jack Klugman doing this over there, or Ed Begley Junior.'s doing, Bailey Senior. I'm sorry, doing this over there, you know, and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's, it's just amazing.
0: I always tell people when they've got like dinner scenes to shoot or table scenes, I go, I always tell them to watch that movie. I said because if you if you're if you're getting stuck trying to figure out a four minute scene at a a table, watch this movie. That's like you know ninety percent in one room, and find all the interesting ways he keeps that thing going. You know, there's usually just sort of a tendency in film where you. which is this is what I always love is when you watch. You watch the filmmakers. They come up and they'll see the table and they got four people and they, they sit around for about an hour and they go, well, let's see. Okay, we should do one here wide shot. We see them at the table and then we'll come in for close ups of each head. And it took them like an hour to figure that out. I'm like, one shot. It's like the same shot you see in every freaking thing, right? So, but maybe there's and and granted, sometimes that's all you can do. You know, sometimes you, you're kind of like stuck and you have to just live with it. But the, the amount of thought that went into 12 angry men in terms of the way they constructed that you, you can see it was clearly beyond that. And what happens when you do do a, and again, I, I, I went and saw a short film one time and the, the and it was a, a Western. It was like a, I think it was about a 10 minute film. But at the very beginning of the film, it said, this film is all shot in one take said right so that was something they were very proud of and they put it in front of the the movie but i was like i think that's the wrong move don't put that in front because then that's all you're thinking about as you're watching is this camera technique had you have done it and then afterwards either people realized it or didn't realize it that's the time to go you know guess what because otherwise you just feel like you're patting yourself on the back before you even show the movie but for me finding a natural progression to one tag i'll give you another great example use 12 angry men High and Low, the Kurosawa film about the kidnapping. You watch the first half of that movie that all takes place in this house, it's amazing. I think the, the average shot length is like three minutes long, you know, because they're just finding and it's not just a camera just sitting there. You gotta understand that the camera that might might be static at times, but it's the, also the, the, the staging of the actors. Then the actors may move and the camera may pivot or it may pull back or it may pan. It's not cutting, but it's, it's finding different setups. So the next the next move and surprisingly not surprisingly, but Tarantino does that all the time. You can watch Tarantino's films, you'll see he relies on one long take often. And I just think it's a much more it forces you as a filmmaker, A, to be more creative. And it also makes the act gives the actors the opportunity to just stay in that character. Whether it's like, okay guys now we're gonna cut around or, or break the performance up by cuts, you know? So I always love that. I love films that can can get away with doing. And I'll give you another example. A more recent example is Roma. Roma was um, the foreign film won best was best, best Oscar I guess was it three years ago now or whatever it was. But I mean, it every scene was one take. Woody Allen's uh, Blue Jasmine, I think it was the same thing. Every scene was one take. So, anyways, it's, that's, I'm not saying that that is a better way to do it. Some films like you know maybe. Uh, Michael Bay movie is only going to survive on being cut like every three seconds or two seconds.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's just, it's a creative choice, but I think to go back to 12 Finger men and then move on is just, it gives the actors a chance to act and do all those things. And it frees up the creative mind of everybody to get that flow going. And then you end up with something that is just a, a beautiful work of art that as you watch it, and I'm not a filmmaker, but I'm watching it. and I'm just enjoying it, watching it over and over again. And then when they do the close-ups, which there are close-ups in it, it has that extra drama and a mm-hmm. dramatic hit. Because I, I saw the remake, which I think was in the late '90s, it was a TV movie version with Jack Lemmon and, and George C. Scott, and
0: right. mm-hmm.
1: I didn't enjoy it as much because they were. It was not the same. You know, it was. I could tell it wasn't the actors. It was more the the directing choices. And it took me a while because I saw it when I was younger and it didn't dawn on me until later on why I didn't like that film as much as the first one. And I think it was because of the style that it was filmed in and not letting the actors be and have a chance to have that flow going and that energy building sort of like in a play, but filmed in a movie and with all the the positives of both.
0: Yeah, and, and I have a scene in Appleseed that is a really poignant, emotional scene. And I chose to do it. It's the longest shot in the movie. It's about three and a half minutes long. And it's all th- shot through a window. There's a small, I say small, I should say short, a short push-in where the camera is just pushing in very, very slowly on the actors. Just because I was changing the frame from being a, a doorway into a, a single frame through the window you almost don't notice it it's so slow because I wanted it to like not be perceptive in your your, your brain now but it was uh, such an emotional scene between two characters that you would tradition not traditionally but I, I can see that generally this would have been the time and the reason I bring this up is because my producer who's also director hands me he goes why well, aren't you going to come in for close-ups because so and I go no that's it it's like I want the audience leaning forward into that window going what are they let me see their face let me like I want that experience of that audience pulling themselves in. Cause if I just cut in to the great shot of the tear dripping out of one's eye or whatever, it's going to have a, nothing's wrong with that. It's not like, well, that's, I made the great choice. I'm just saying it's a different choice. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I probably see so often that I decide to sometimes rail against it, not as in stating this is one shot, but just because then when you walk out of it, you go, I felt, different to me that felt like I you know that, that's what I'm hoping for it's like I'm hoping to reach the audience by being different I'll give you an example you watch a lot of comedies Will Ferrell comedies I love them they're great but they're very standard shot there's the master shot there's an over shoulder shot there's a close-up they just go back and forth back and forth then you watch a movie like Hot Fuzz for instance oh yeah which is uh, or Shaun of the Dead um, and these movies that are comedies like you could say a Will Ferrell movie is a comedy whatever but watch the way they shoot it it's their their attention to the camera angles the usage of of like for instance there's a scene where there's a car driving and how do they show they could just show a couple shots of a car driving and now it's driving here now it's driving it was all locked off on the um on the uh the uh, siren on the police car and it goes through sunshine through night through rain it's the same shot but it's just the weather changes you know and it was a funny interesting way of indicating time change you know and that's the kind of that's the kind of brain power that goes into a film that makes you come out of it going, that was, that was something I felt different. Even if you're not sitting there, you going, oh, look at how they're doing those shots. you know, That's what's, what I'm always trying to find as a filmmaker. I think that actually right there, that's the part of my brain that made me, I, even though I still love acting and I still like doing it, I found myself turning away acting work more often to direct because that part of my brain gets to get used that as an actor I get to emote I get to play I get to cry I get to express but it's not the same same brain power I'm using the same sort of mathematical sort of deduction that I'm having to go through as a director which is what's challenging for me and which is what I enjoy
1: oh yes and and um and like I said, I've seen, I've seen a lot of your movies and it definitely works. And a lot of your movies, you're acting and directing in them. So, I mean, you're, you're doing like, like Clint Eastwood style. You're doing double duty.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, Eastwood and Chaplin and Cassavetes and I've like some of my most, the biggest inspirations is filmmakers are all actor directors, you know, um, to Buster Keaton, you know, I mean, so I, yeah, definitely something that, uh, something I like to do. I don't always do this, this film I'm doing about the band. I'm not going to be in, I mean, I might stick myself in for fun in a scene, but I'm not playing one of the, uh, the leads in it. Uh, and sometimes it, it, there's a case where, you know, I realized, I think with, with Appleseed and with God's ears, I almost, um, I had somebody else originally to direct it. Um, and then they saw what the budget was. They saw what my time, uh, my schedule was, and they said, I don't know if I can carry this off. And, and this, kind of conditions, I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so yeah. that's how I directed my first movie.
1: And, and just before we get to God's ear, God's ears, um, Devil on the Mountain or Sasquatch Mountain, you know, um, right. you're an actor and, and now when, and also you helped, you, you wrote it or co-wrote, I can't believe did you write it all or did you co-write it? I wrote it, yeah. I couldn't hear you. I wrote it, I didn't direct it. Okay, I know you didn't direct it, but I was just, wasn't sure. I said, if I wrote that one, I didn't direct it. Yeah. I know you didn't direct yeah. it. I, I was just, I didn't know if you wrote it all together or, or you co-wrote it. That's uh, that was the one thing I wasn't positive of.
0: Yeah, no, no. I wrote that
1: one. Yeah. That one, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's going to tie in with apple seed and some of these other movies, the things we've been talking about, but that's the one you were working with Lance Hendrickson, Rance Howard, um, Tim Thomerson, um, Karen Kim, who we didn't mention earlier was in us seals two also. Um you, you so and she's Correct. been in a lot of your films. Um what was it like doing Devil in the Mountain? You know, because it, it, it ties in so well with the last movie we're gonna be talking about. An Appleseed.
0: Yeah. I it was great it was a lot of fun. Um it was the first time I'd worked with the sci fi channel and um I just had gone in there for another film this production company and while i was it was pitching another movie with some action film or something and then as i was walking out they had a poster up for a movie called sasquatch that they had distributed and i said oh i love bigfoot i'm a big fan i just I like i've always been intrigued by that i said what if i wrote you another bigfoot movie would you want to put it together and they said well if you write something we might like to do because we did really well with that and i said all right i got an idea and i just kind of threw it out at them. i said what if we do this thing where these guys rob a bank and it's sort of like cops and robbers having to pair up together to deal with Bigfoot and she was like I love it. What's it so anyways that's how it started um but and then I just hired all my friends to be in it Karen Kim like all the names you just mentioned I just wrote everybody you saw that movie pretty much I specifically wrote the parts with them in mind um and then um and you're like you said it, uh, it was well we shot it in Flagstaff Arizona so it was up in the up in the mountains there and uh, it was just great. It was a lot of fun to do. I was trying to do a little bit, I mean, you know, as films do, they evolve and they change and they shift and they meet certain criteria. And so they sometimes don't always end up the way you started them. But I was trying to do more of a psychological thing about a group a, a group of people that the reason I called the Devil on the Mountain was the Devil on the Mountain could be Sasquatch, but it's also their own devils that they all have to face on top of the mountain. Because each of them, once they're thrown into a cabin together, the idea was to find all their different, like, all their different fears that were coming out. And it was a movie where every film after that point I'd seen was Sasquatch. Sasquatch is this, you know, salivating, bang creature that's, like, tearing people's heads off. I said, what if we have that fear through the movie? Because they needed it to be, they needed people to be afraid, you know, however afraid you could be of that movie. But I said, what if at the end we realized, wait a minute, you know, actually I think it that creature was not the real devil in the movie. You know, you start to put it together and, and that was kind of what I was hoping to do with uh with the movie. But like you said, I had a chance to work with Craig Watson and, and Rant and, and all of those guys again. And um and it did lead to Appleseed actually indirectly, yeah.
1: And one of the in that one you play um one of the bank robbers and Rand Howard plays right. the I think it was the Sheriff. The sheriff. And mm-hmm. and he's and he's kinda like a uh, modern version of Opie's dad, you know, Andy Griffith show. He's like the modern version right. of the sheriff in my mind. I picture him like, cause he's, he's laid back. He's like, you know, and, and he's not as gung. He's like, gets the job done, but you don't have to be like in your face at the type doing it. And he's close to, and he's close to retiring and so on. And look, Chris Lance Hendrickson and, and Tim Thomerson play his buddies, you know, from back in the day that still live in the town. And, they go out there yeah. after the bank robbers, after you guys. And uh, my, my favorite scene at the end of that movie, and of course this is a little bit of a spoiler because obviously it tells you two of the characters that are going to make it to the end. Um, you're getting taken away by him and his car, and you both are talking about how you're similar but not similar. And then out each side of the window, you guys are doing the gesture with your arms, like like people do, like you, when you're when you're driving in a car and you put your hand out, you just let it go with the airflow, and you're both doing that, not realizing right. you're both doing it, and you're and you're more alike than you thought. And I thought that was just that was just a cool scene to cut away and end the movie on.
0: Oh, I'm glad you caught that. Yeah that that was a that was a fun, that was sort of the tie to the whole thing at the end. You know, it's like finding out we're not all that different, and you know we just go off on different paths. And it's funny because that moment is what inspired Appleseed because I was going to write um, when I was going to write the sequel. It was actually the sequel was going to be Sasquatch versus Yeti. <laughs> and it was going to be a whole thing where the Yeti gets brought in. And it was the same, some of the same characters because they're bringing a Yeti in and they're going to do And then and it gets loose once it starts sensing the is near and it gets out. And it was pretty crazy. But um, but I had thought, I thought, well, let's see if we, end, we start off with me being the bank robber and and uh, Rance being the sheriff, I said, where, where, maybe maybe he tries to talk him into robbing a bank with him. And then I was like, oh, maybe that's kind of a funny scene. And then, then that ultimately became what was Appleseed, which was that, you know, you've got this guy that wants to go rob a bank, picking up this hitchhiker this Rance. And so we sort of picked up a sort of morphed elements of our characters from that movie in Appleseed.
1: And we'll do this, we'll jump right into Appleseed now, then we'll come back and talk about God's ears. Um, Okay. But with Appleseed, this it is the perfect segue into it, I mean I think. And like I already said earlier on, that out of all the movies I saw in twenty twenty, this was that came out in twenty twenty. This was the best one I've seen. You know, it's just oh, for me so much. It, it's a buddy picture with of your character and Rance's character meeting up and traveling to the town of Appleseed and the different people you encounter in en route, the different little segments where you have Adrienne Barbeau as Jolene, the waitress, and she's wonderful. And the scene, oh, it's just Clint Howard's in it with, uh, playing Rance Howard's son, w- which is a big stretch, but it's a totally different dynamic. Robbie Benson.
0: But that was the first time they ever played father and son. Really? they have been in movies together before. Like, Clint and Rance had been in, like, you know, Ron put them in a bunch of his movies, but that was the very first time. And of course, the last time they got to play father and son. So it was really a a poignant moment for both of them. And I didn't know that. I just, I thought they'd done it a few times before. And then when they, when Clint came out, he was like, this is the first time we've ever done this. I was like, oh my God, that's great. (laughs) And I actually didn't want to go to him. You know who I actually was going to go to was Dolph Lundgren. I thought, man, that'd be great if Dolph Lundgren was Rance's son. I just said, I said, give Dolph some kind of a, so that was my original thought of who I was going to go for, for that scene. And then, Somehow, when Rance and I were talking, and Clint came up a couple times, I thought, "Can I? Do you think Clint would be interested in this?" And and I just done broken memories with Rance, and he was, "Oh, I think he'd, I think he'd love it." And so I asked him, and he was like, "Yeah, let's do it." So it
1: was great. I, I, I can't imagine Dolph doing the same role, but it, that that would be interesting. You I mean, have me in my mind. It just blew my mind thinking Dolph Lundgren playing that same. Well, I know. And, and that's
0: what I mean. It's like it would have been weird and odd, but I think it would have been interesting to have seen, you know? And I, cause I, at that point, specifically, you know, Dolph had been doing so many action films and we were talking, he was talking to me about stretching his roles and doing money. I thought, started thinking, hmm, maybe he want to do this, you know? But I never got around to asking him specifically about that. I do have another script. I'm, I'm writing a script with him now, but I've got one I'm writing for him that I'm hoping he'll do afterwards.
1: Uh, cross our fingers, right? You know, and hope that all you know. Especially if you're writing it for him, and if you want to get out of the action mix a little bit and do and show that um, creativity. I mean, it, it, you know, yeah. And he's he's, yeah. he's practically well, go ahead. I was just saying, and he's a genius too. So it's not like you know, if he sees something there, he's a le- he's a legitimate genius.
0: <laughs> no, I know it's it's always funny when we're we're having our script meetings, and he'll like. Laps into some kind of number thing with numbers. He goes, he'll start going, and then there's this plus this, and then he goes, you know, I love numbers, and I'm like, yeah, I get it, Dolph. I get it. Stop showing off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put an apple seed in ways that people understand. There's so many things about it that I like in this film. One of the things I got to mention off the bat, so I don't forget, the music throughout the movie mm. is just amazing. Is the soundtrack available?
0: Well, I don't know if it's available yet, but I'm really close with the musicians, the two musicians that did it. I, The music was really critical for me because when I think road trip, I think people always have their radios on, you know, and they're also, so music becomes like the soundtrack of every road trip that a person takes. And because my, my inspiration for this was more thematic of like 70s road trip movies like uh, Emperor of the North, where they're hopping on the trains or Scarecrow with Al Pacino and... Uh, Gene Hackman, Found um, for Glory with David Carey. You know, there there's a certain vibe I wanted. And there were some musicians that were well-known that I just knew I wasn't going to get. But then Corey Chisel, is his name, um, came to my attention via the, the producer. And his stuff was just perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So I actually a couple of the songs I knew ahead of time. And when I was shooting the scenes, I was doing a Sergio Leone thing where I would play the songs. I was rehearsing the scene, So I kind of knew that a song was going to fit over top of it. And then another artist, Alana Sweetwater, she does, I think three songs in it. Um, she was somebody that came to me later and, uh, she actually was considered for one of the roles actually in the movie too, but she, uh, she did. Yeah. But thank you for saying, so the music, it was, was something I was really happy with for, for that film for sure.
1: Oh, it, it fits the movie like a glove. And now knowing that you were playing it in the background by filming or, or at least, you're going for the process, it makes even more sense because it fits so easily into the film. And Yeah. Now, Rance Howard, this is this was his first and only leading role?
0: It's his first, yeah. Well, he, I did a movie with him called Broken Memories where he played one of the leads. But what I mean by his first and only leading role, it's his first number one credit. It was the first time he was the first and only credit. I mean, he'd done a couple of films where he was probably in the top four or five, I think like Mm -hmm. a couple of them, but not many. I mean, it was definitely, um, so it was definitely his first leading number one, you know, main credit role.
1: That's what I mean. First on the call list and that kind of stuff.
0: What's that?
1: First on the call list. Number one. That's what I was meaning. Like this first time he is, he is the star.
0: Number one guy. Yeah. He was number one guy. And you know, not that he ever wanted to be treated that way. I mean, he was always the hardest I mean, I did movies. I've done five movies with him, and he would be—we'd be out in the middle of the desert in Tucson, Arizona, where it's like 110 degrees, and he'd just be standing out there rehearsing his lines, rehearsing while everybody else is in their trailer, like, going, "It's hot, it's hot," and he would just be like, "I'm gonna get my lines down," you know. And it was just—I just—I'll never forget that. And on that note, because I forget, there's a a book coming out that Clinton Ron wrote called "The Boys," that's coming out about their being raised by Rants. Oh, really. Yeah, it's called The Boys. It comes out, I think, in August or September, but uh they already finished
1: it. Well that that'll be that'll be something worth looking up and picking up and thing Yeah, Yeah. Sure. Because for people that don't know, and, and I think this will spoil the film a little bit, it is available on Showtime. Um in real life, Rance was winding down health wise um as this movie's going on. And his character is also winding down health wise. And I don't know. Did you know that right. when you were writing that or is that just something that happened when, after you wrote the script?
0: No, it, it actually was, it was not something we knew. As a matter of fact, it was kind of a surprise to us entire, until afterwards, you know? Um, and, um, you know, there was chances are he had gotten contracted sick from being bit by a mosquito, whether it was in California or so We don't, we don't know one know exactly where, but you know, it just it kind of got to him and he, uh, and as it happened, that film is probably the one that I was closest to doing in actual sequence of any film I've ever done, that we were shooting it along the way, basically in order. So you're right. It was sort of like from the beginning on down, it was towards the end of the shoot, which is also exhausting anyway, to get exhausted and tired. In fact, the first shot in the movie with me and behind me it was the first shot we ever did, you know? So that that condition definitely played into it. And and I think we were all noticing it our way through because Rance has always been somebody that was, you get off, it's called off book, where you get your your memorized and you toss the script aside and you're on set. You don't need to be constantly looking at your script to see your lines, you know? And he was always that way. And during this movie, it was what we noticed he had to have a script with him all the time because his brain wasn't retaining the information, you know? And And it was very troubling for him personally because he didn't want, he didn't want to be that guy that forgot his lines, but it was like that, that guy had shots where I could see the script and it was hard because I knew if I said, Hey, Rance, you know, I can kind of see your script. You know, he, it was almost embarrassing for him and he didn't want to be the guy that's known for having to hold his script, but it was like the poor guy. And he wouldn't stop though. He wouldn't just, he just kept going. He didn't want to stop, you know? Um, but you're right. It's when I watch it sometimes and there's a, for those that haven't seen it yet, there's the, scene that that sort of climaxes around a bank robbery towards the end of the movie and, and you can see him in there and you know you can just i think you can always see it in his being tired you know in that scene you know and it's so um but it, what a beautiful man to work with and whew, just as professional as they is as old school actor as they come you know and to have given him that project to, he knew about it. he knew i'd written it for him 10 years before took 10 years to get it going and um I, one of my greatest joys in my life will always be knowing that I got that movie done in time for him to do. Um, he never got a chance to see it completed. He got to see some of the footage and stuff, but he never got a chance to see it completed, unfortunately.
1: And it just shows you his total professionalism. And he comes across, in all the films I've seen him in, he just seems like this really nice person, you know, like that, that you would just really get to know. And it's just one of those things. just It seems like that hard work ethic and stuff like that. Um, just, to, just, 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 to, I mean, he's been in so many things in his career. It's, it's, it's,
0: yeah. Oh God, his resume is like longer than everybody. You know, I was, I gave, I gave a, a eulogy at his, at his service. You know, I got to get up and talk and I remember one of the things I said is I looked around the room and you had all these people like Brian Grazer in there and, you know, Henry Winkler and everybody was there. And I was like, oh, I think Rance's resume was longer than every single one of yours is all put together. You know I mean? He's just, He's been around so much i remember i was even you know because my the movies i do they're not we're not in these catered uh you know trailers everybody gets that and it was shooting one page a day and it's all like it's not we're like hustling and moving we're doing eight or nine pages sometimes a day we're on the road we sometimes are lucky if we just got an apple box to sit on you know we're we're driving around in vans so you know, I mean, it's like you know, we shot him on a moving train, you know, that we got to rent for five hours on that on that film, and which Ron Howard told me was like one of his favorite scenes in the movie. My he, Ron told me that his favorite scenes in the movie was the train and my grandmother, so that was kind of nice. But I said to Ron, I go, you know, I go. I, there was a part of me that felt like God, I'm taking his dad through this this intense ordeal and putting him on a moving train with no safety harnesses or anything, and and I kind of mentioned it to him. He goes. He goes, oh, Mike, he goes, you, you don't worry about that. He goes, he probably made my dad happier than ever than just by just giving him that opportunity to be on that train, you know? Mm-hmm. So that made me feel a little better because I was starting to feel like, well, oh. oh, they're going to be going, what are you doing with my, you know, 80-plus-year-old father?
1: <laughs> you, you never know how family is going to react when they see certain, when they hear certain things, and that, that is true. And um, obviously, um, with Ron Howard being knowing the business so well, I think it, it's, it's a different yeah. aspect, you know, when you're, when you're talking to him. And, and. and- yeah, and
0: as, a, as a director, even though like we talked about earlier, I like being very planned and plotted out. One of my favorite things to do is catching moments from actors that were unintended. Like I will almost always try to see if I can leave an accident and something falls over so and they react. to it. When people stay in, in the character, it's like I want to keep it because you can never reenact it. You know, so it's more gold. And so if you watch Appleseed, there's a like you were mentioning, it's a road trip movie deals with a, a guy that I play who who gets really fed up in life and decides he's going to go back home to his hometown, which he's kind of pissed off at his hometown, in a sort of passive aggressive way. Cause he really kind of misses it, but it's at the same time, he's mad that the bank has uh, pulled off the, uh, the uh, loan on their, their current business with him and his father and his father passed away. His girlfriend leaves him. So he's going to go back home, drive across the United States and go rob his, his hometown bank in sort of like a moment of stupid desperation of, of everything and he picks up Rance. so the two of them are traveling together and you start to realize this Rance character has got his own past and he's trying to maybe steer him away from doing what he's doing um but uh w- um God, i forgot where i was going with this what was i saying um i was going to tell you <laughs> it's so funny i was getting so into something, it something that's um, un- unplanned
1: that you picked up on
0: oh thank you yes unplanned. <laughs> so on this road trip thank you very much on the road trip, you'll notice there's a couple of scenes. There's one scene where the two of us are, are at a, um, we're pulled over to the side of the road and we're urinating on this, on this, uh, on this uh, corral. Well, that was all. His dialogue was just, I had set the camera up and I just got R- Rance to stand there with me. Now, Rance is kind of, I realized, a little bit of a method actor. So he was actually standing there. He had this really stand there with, with, <laughs> with the prop in his hand. So, but when the camera, I had the camera start rolling while he was just talking to me about growing up in Oklahoma. So when you hear that piece of the dialogue, that's just him talking to me. And I stayed in character because I knew the camera was rolling. So, and his character was so much like his personality that it was, it fit perfect. And there's a little clip at the end of the movie after the credit or right before the credits roll where he's talking to me in the car. And it's the same thing. The camera, we just filmed our scenes the car mounts on the camera so it's still rolling and after we've done our scenes we're just driving a little bit to pull over and he's talking to me about sodas and, and the caffeine you know the, the cocaine that might have been used in sodas back in the day and, and about the girls he met and it's all just him talking to me and I just thought it was just I couldn't fit it into the movie per se I tried to at one point but it was getting too extended so I stuck in it in at the end during the credits because it was just so fun you
1: know and, and that's what I like is when you give when you you take those opportunities when they, and, 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 and go for it. You know, it's just like, eh, yeah, cause other people will be like, Oh, we're done. But you, you're, you set up for those possibilities. And by setting up for the possibilities, a lot of times you might not get anything, but those sometimes you get gold and you're just like, Oh, I got some nuggets here. And now how do yeah. I fit it into the movie? And if you can't, at least you put it in there at the credits so people can still see
0: there is a couple of scenes in there. We talked about this earlier about the time frame. They were trying to, I, my, my draft, my, my rough cuts of the movie kept like kind of just tipping two hours. And so it was a little long and I thought, okay, I got to start pulling some stuff out. And I got it down to, I, I want to say about a hundred and something minutes. And uh, at one point I had to cut out two scenes I really loved a lot. And, and so I took it to the guys that were, were doing the distribution that made me bring it down and I said, well, here's, here it is. And they saw it. And they timed it. And went, okay, that's perfect. They gave it back to me to deliver. And as soon as they gave it back to me, I dropped the two scenes back in. <laughs> it, was only like three, it was only like three minutes. But I figured, okay, they clocked it. They'll never notice I slipped those two scenes back in. Because one of them was his, him talking about his ex-wife and the things that she had asked him to do. And I, it just felt like some people go, oh, I think we get it. We get it. You know, But it was like he did such a good job. And I felt like that moment was so, it always was very poignant to me. Um, that I had to put it back in. So it was that and one other scene. But there's a lot of things I cut out of there. I didn't, you know, as a filmmaker, you sometimes you get married to ideas of things that you love because it's saying something to you when you made it. Like I had some shots with me as a little kid running and jumping into the the, the water and then we we pulled some of that out. And there's other stuff that came out, some relationship stuff with me and um, the uh, with uh, Esther, who plays my ex-girlfriend um that went on for a little bit you know the, the, one of the parts of the movie that was important for me was showing how this relationship he has to reconcile with the sex relationship he has with this woman in his life and um and it went on a little longer we had a, we had a little bit of backside nudity in one scene when they go to robbie benson's place there was a scene where there's it's a, it's a funny the scene where we were sitting on a pier and, and and he's going i'm going we gotta get out of here you know uh, carl we gotta, get, and Carmel, we gotta get going we gotta get out of this place and I was like, we'll just hang out here for a little bit. I go, no, I want to get on the road. We got to get going. And all of a sudden, as we're talking, you see these two naked women climbing into the water because they're on this kind of commune thing. And they get into the water. And then I go, okay, we're just staying one night. <laughs> 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 but it was it was a very funny scene. But then there was a little bit of this. Well, if we put two female butts in, it's going to maybe change our rating. And then I said, all right, we'll cut it out. But anyway, so it's, it's always funny when that happens.
1: Well, I guess I guess if you have the DVD to Blu-ray, we can always have those deleted scenes. That's right. Scenes. If
0: we had a Blu-ray, yeah, that's true. Once we get our Showtime deal finished up, maybe that's what we will do. Um,
1: two of my favorite scenes in the movie is one with um, Lance, I'm not like Rance and your grandmother. The other one, right? I'm going to talk about first. You said you lit him and had him set up a thing where he looked like a superhero like that, like the hero entrance, the, um, when he coming to save your character from being beat up and right. here, the way you lit him with the car and, and him using the, um, t- the, the car antenna as a weapon and all that stuff. I was just, it, it was just, uh, is that the first time he was ever playing like an action scene, like an action hero scene where he was the hero? Well,
0: it's funny because I- I'm sure he's probably done some butt whipping before. I don't, I've never seen it. I don't even know um and and that was about halfway through the shoot and i had actually intended to make it a little bit more brutal with him but i I could tell it was already getting a little tired and stuff so it's a a quick little scene but um i that was what you said is exactly what i wanted was i wanted this this very like majestic sort of entrance to like sort of differentiate him because he's been so passive and so sort of sitting on the sidelines being silly i thought i'm gonna have this moment where you see the the ass kicker that was probably in prison, you know, at one point, in his life, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Cause it was just one of those things where you hear you got this character who's been so nice and kind and dropping these little pearls of wisdom, all these different stops. And suddenly he's, he hears about you not coming back and he he's not back yet. And he goes and checks on you like, like a dad to a son and, um, and sees you in trouble. And then literally just, he's like, let's put this way. He wasn't chewing bubble gum. So he, you know, so it's either. Yeah. <laughs>
0: What's funny too, because I remember I screened that movie for Ron and Clint and a bunch of people, Michael Gross and Adrian was there. And it was funny because I had the scene where he's sitting down talking to me about his past. He reveals a traumatic thing that happened to him sort of when he was a little younger and, and he makes the date July 20th, 1973. And I, when I was writing it. I usually like when I'm writing, because I don't just arbitrarily pick things out. I always think of names that mean something to me or are from my past and, I was going, What's kind of a date? I went oh July 1970. That's when Bruce Lee died. I thought that was a pretty traumatic. So I wrote it in there. What I forgot was I invited Bruce Lee's daughter Shannon to come to the screening. And after the movie, she came up to me and we were talking. And she goes, "I noticed you used my dad." I went, "Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot." And I put that in there. I've known her for a long time, you know, but it was interesting that she pulled that date out. I was like, "Oh yeah, just think about that."
1: And now now everybody that's a Bruce Lee fan is gonna know it's like oh there's a little hidden um message in yeah. there with the date
0: I think there's a couple of a couple of little Easter eggs in there on Bruce Lee yeah but uh um yeah that was uh, that was a fun scene That was shot in Bisbee Bisbee Arizona
1: and um now your, your grandmother's scene is for those yeah. you know for um, Carl Rance Howard's character is going through and he's, he's basically stopped the stops. He's forcing you to do in order for him to fund your trip to Appleseed. He's forcing you to do these stops is these make, he's, he's talking to people about things that he had done, trying to re- rectify or remedy things in the past. And, right. and your grandmother plays a character that he wants to meet with. And I think, was she the last one that he had to meet or the second to last one? Well, no,
0: Robbie Benson is next after that, but it's it's uh, comes up after that, and then of course Clint comes a little later, but but it's interesting because that's an example of a later day change in the script. In the script, when we started shooting, I actually had that character, my grandmother's character, that he's wronged in the past, actually be uh, dead. So he in the story he was going to say, "I got to go somewhere," and I'm like, "Okay, we're going to go," and then realize he's gone to a cemetery. And he just goes to the funeral, and I was going, wait a minute. I go, why do I have to – I should make her alive and make it my grandmother. I go, I've been wanting to put my grandmother and Rance in the same – I tried that in the last movie. I was just going to stick my grandmother into a just a scene next to him in a, like an old home that they were in. And I thought, I thought here's my chance. So I called my mom. I said, Mom, can you bring my – grand? you know, Lo, her name's Lois. I said, can you bring Lois out? And she's like, yeah, sure, bring her out. And so Rance, at this point in the story – I mean, at the point in the shooting, he was was having trouble with his lines a lot. You know, he was really struggling. And I said, look, Rant, I'm bringing my, the scene where you were supposed to go to the cemetery, I'm going to bring my grandmother out. I'm going to have the character be alive. She's going to be in this, this uh, retirement home. And you're going to come and you're going to talk to her. And I said, she can't have lines because she's got dementia anyways. I mean, I can sit there and coax her and have her do things, but she's not going to remember lines. So I said, you're going to have to, you know, I said, you're going to put, and he, he wasn't used to improv. So he was like a little, there was a part it was like, nerd, like well, they, uh, script. I go, just don't worry about it. We'll just come give it a try. So in the movie, when you watch it, you'll see Rance walking down the hall and then he goes and sits down. It's a long shot. He's down with my grandmother. I also kept them apart. They never met each other before that scene. So when I started rolling cameras and my grandma was sitting there, Rance had never even met her because I really wanted it to just play Supernatural. So he goes and he sits down next to her and, and, he, and I said, look, I told him, I said, all you're doing is you're coming to pay, you're, you're trying to get her to, and you're trying to talk to her about what happened in the past. And I knew, I said, I knew if my grandmother is going to, what she's going to do is she's not, she's just going to listen to him and go, what? She, and I knew she was going to not remember because she's going to be like, I, don't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't this person or was not that, but it was going to work perfect because in the story she's supposed to have that, have lost that memory anyway. Um, and but when, one thing I told him was I said when you go up and start talking to her don't say your last name his name is Carl Robbins Carl Robbins is the name of my grandmother's father I had named her, him after her father so I said just say Carl and I go and watch when you say Carl she's going to mention her father and sure enough so when he sits down and goes hi my name's Carl she goes oh that was my father's name how do you spell it that was all just her just going into her you know anyway so that whole scene was an improvisational scene I got it in a couple different shots just because, you know, I had to come in there on their faces and stuff. And uh, that was a tough one to cut to. That was probably like a six-minute scene when I was first doing it because it was so great. Their interaction was so wonderful. And Rance just totally went with it. He was having such a ball doing that improvisation. So um, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a favorite scene to do. And I'm glad that, it, you know, at the last minute I decided to put it in because I thought it made a big difference.
1: Oh, it did, it did, and I'm I'm glad it was in there because, at the time, I didn't know it was your grandmother, you know, like like yeah. from from ear or that one. I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, because different last names and all that stuff, you know, it doesn't doesn't ring a bell. And if you look, and we look her up in um IMDb, there's there's virtually nothing listed there except that she's in a lot of your films, <laughs> you
0: know,
1: yeah, and that kind of thing. And because uh, I was like when I saw God's ears, I was like, Oh, this, this person, this, let me see what they did in the past. Oh, this was their first film. Oh, that was where, where they've been, <laughs> and right, you, right. you know, and that kind of thing. Cause I've really, I really enjoyed her work and it was just nice to see her again and to see that the two of them play it off because I think what's missing a lot of times in films and, and this goes back to film history. I think a lot of times when actors get to a certain age or people get to a certain age, they don't want to utilize them anymore. And that's one thing with your work, um you've had a lot of actors and actresses that are you know older that are coming in there and are still able to and show this this professional this this work that they've done it's not like they've lost anything they just got older and in some ways there are better actors now than they were 30 years ago and and, and you're not utilizing that experience or yeah. to get small roles and you're giving them well, in the case of your grandmother, a smaller role, but rant's a huge role, in and that's and the Adrian Adrian Barbeau, you, she has a small role, but uh, it's just it's still it's like you see them there and you see what they do. It's just amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it was, you know it was a little tr- it was a little tough because it was a little bit of a trip because we had to bring my grandmother out to Arizona. My mom had you know and she got a little disoriented and stuff, but it was just well worth it in the end. You know, and in fact, if you look up online the documentary I've been shooting on her now for since it's been almost seven years now I've been doing um about progressing her dementia or forgetfulness and how the family interacts so it's called wrestling for the company because one of the memories that she has in her life is wrestling with her brother for the company that would come over when she was a kid so she's like it's like she won't remember if she ate food five minutes before she'll sometimes forget who her own you know daughter is or whatever, but it's like there's something about that specific memory that just stays with her, and you know it's it's um, anyways it's been a real interesting uh, and I've put it up on GoFundMe because I was trying to raise money to get the the film the the doc like all self you know self finance production and stuff, but uh, I'm trying to shoot it to when she turns a hundred, which will be next February, so we'll, we'll hopefully make it.
1: Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Now let's go back to her her first movie God's Ears which
0: God's Ears right
1: John Saxon Yes Oh my lord I I've seen John Saxon in so many different things as the starring role as a, as, a, as a supporting actor and this one he's he's a, was the supporting actor but he steals the movie no, nothing personal from you but you do a great job but he steals the no, movie No I know
0: what you mean <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, I had actually written that for Lance Henriksen, believe it or not. I'd written that for Lance, and then Lance got caught up and something couldn't do it. So I called John three days, I think, before I needed him on set, and I said, "Would you take a look at?" I'd never worked with him before. I'd met him before, but I had never worked with him. So he read it, and he called me back within two hours. And said, "I'll, I'll absolutely do this." And it was like I. Had, so all of his scenes—an example of how we did—is we shot in three days. I think we shot everything he did in three days. So it was, again, it was one of those breakneck, you know, sort of shooting processes. Um, but uh, yeah, he, um, he, and that's another Bruce Lee reference. His name was Lee in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, he was great in it. It's, it's a, a very, his relationship with the Noah character, the, the guy that I play and, and, and just his, his character. I loved it in that movie and I was, he was so perfect for it. And I'm, and he actually told me, he said, it's, God ears is one of his top three favorite films he ever made. So it was kind of a nice, uh, that meant a lot
1: to me. Uh, in my opinion, it was it, it's his best work because that's just the way he handled it as the aging boxing trainer who sees your character, Noah, who has um, autism, who's there helping out, but he sees this talent and how he works with you as a, as a father figure, as a mentor and, yeah, and goes through that film, but also the scenes where he's with the um, the other trainer. I'm trying to remember his name, but their scenes are gold.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: what was his name again?
0: His, his real name is David John Thomas. Yeah,
1: and the first time he got kind of cut off. That's why I had to repeat it. Um, so, but those two guys, I don't know if they ever worked together or not, but or had, had to change to talk to each other. But they were just they they, they seemed there's was, there was such good acting going on that they've known each other for years and have this love, hate, so relationship, you know, where it's, it's mostly love, but there's like mm-hmm. that, that, friendly rivalry. It's like, Oh, when are you going to put those gloves back on or what are you going to do this and that, or when are you go train somebody and and those kind of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, no, They'd never met. They'd, that was the first time they met each other was on that set.
1: Well, they both did wonderful work and your work in that film, playing, playing somebody with autism was amazing and how you had showed that. And then, I think one of the best things to help people realize, cause people don't always know at the end of the thing at the credits, you had um, some footage of a youngster going through the same stuff that you were going through with the, the, um, the, um the, the doctors and stuff like that, going through the different training to show that this is actually what really is done. Um, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think that helps because a yeah, lot of people Kevin don't know.
0: Harry was the- yeah, Carrie, um, Carrie, who was the the therapist, the behavioral therapist, and and Shane, who was the who was the kid. They, those two, car- those two people. Um, the the therapist who played played by Missy Capture in the movie was based on her, and and I was using aspects of my personality in the film based on Shane. You know.
1: Yeah, but it, it really ties. It, I think, like I said, like it really brings it together for people that wouldn't know or have dealt with anybody or not dealt, I should yeah. say, but been around people with autism. And that brings us back to your grandmother again, where you take, um, a couple of, um, friends, so to speak, you know, one, one, you're really, your character's really fallen in, lo- in love with and she's, and she has this interest in you because you're so different than anything that she's ever encountered. And, um, cause yeah, her, her, career is as a stripper and in your career, of course, is something totally di- I mean, you talk about night and day with, with, um, Yeah. Careers. And, and you take them to the farm, back to your farm, the farm, the farm, and that's where um, your grandmother is playing mall. And, and, and she is just a joy, you know, when she comes in, it's so much, but all of a sudden you come in and you see this person in there. I think she was having, what was it? Like a a water gun or water balloon fight.
0: Water balloon fight with Kim Thomerson. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uncle Steve. And the reason I remember that, of course, I'm Steve. So it makes it easy to remember his character's name. And, And yeah. And he was wonderful also. It was just so much. I don't know. I don't know how you pulled off getting them together, you know, and, and getting that role, but the, he was wonderful too. And she was wonderful. Oh, it's just. Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes a film is like kind of just getting lucky with your mixture, you know, you, whether it's the locations and the timing and the people, you know, we all, that, that property we shot at, we were just staying there. We all slept in that. There was just, it was a bunch of cabins and stuff and that's where we were up there for like three days. And, and, uh, and we just would wake up and eat and go film, go back to sleep. <laughs> so that's how it worked.
1: I mean, it, it was, it was really good. And I'm just glad that John Saxon, I don't know. Did he do any, did he do any movies after that one or was that pretty much his final one? Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, he kept working. I did another couple of movies with him. I He was in a film called war wolves that I did for the sci-fi channel. And then, uh, he's actually got a role in bringing the head of Lance Henriksen, which was the last thing he did it hasn't come out yet but he also did some TV stuff after we did after he did that movie
1: I've always loved him with Enter the Dragon that that that's to me overall yeah. his his my favorite role of his is probably Enter the Dragon the one I think he showed the best acting was in yours but i think the you know, overall like Enter the Dragon i mean you know he he played that very well also but it was yeah. it, it's like a different kind of movie <laughs>
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. But yeah, you're right. And I think he had, like I said, I met, it means a lot to me that that God's stood out for him. So I was happy about that.
1: And now when I'm going to use, I'm going to use the enter the dragon to tie into some of the things that you're doing currently. And um, cause we know something I've, I've talked to you once about this before you saw enter the dragon at a young age, thinking it was something totally different than what it was.
0: Yeah. Right,
1: I don't know if you wanted to share yes, that. Yes, I the...
0: saw it. I saw, yeah, I saw *Enter the Dragon*, thinking it was a monster movie. And I went with my brother and a friend of our families. And halfway through the movie, I looked up at him. I said, "When's he going to enter the dragon?" You know, because so I thought there was going to be some dragon in the movie. But as I stepped away from it, I was so taken by his physicality and his his finesse and his just personality that I just opened up an entirely new door for me in terms of interest
1: his Bruce Lee's charisma and charm and, and, and everything was just, it's, 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 it's I don't think it, there's people that come close to it, but there's never going to be another Bruce Lee. And I, I don't think anybody should ever try to be another somebody else. I think they should be their own self. Right. And cause audiences know when you're trying to imitate somebody too much and then and, and you, and you lose the true you. I think people like it when they can see right. the true you.
0: Yeah, and that's the ironic thing about the whole Bruce Ploitation thing, which is that Bruce Lee's whole point was to be your own individual. He would always talk about that. He would say, Here's why I have a problem with traditional martial arts because he goes, You're trying to teach everybody the same technique, and everybody's different, different heights, different levels of aggression, different personalities. And that's how he thought about his own martial art he goes, I got to find what's appropriate for me. You know, it's like I'm going to do things differently. I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to be more off to do this, you know, and. Mm-hmm. And that's how Jeep Kune Do came about, but ironically, the whole Bruce Plotation thing was so counterintuitive to what Bruce Lee himself was teaching. You know, because they were all trying to imitate him. You know,
1: well, what they say in movie making? You know, um, imitation is the is the sincere the sphere of um, what is it? the sincerest form of flattery um, correct flattery. Where that's right. That's where the yep. money is. Let's keep pumping it out. But that's a different yeah different genre. You know, not a different genre, but a different um, mindset. It's the businessman mindset. Yeah but you've started working on something for a while now the bruce exploitation bible
0: right there's a a, a kind of a, a secondary um uh for, you know company i have that i deal with um one of the things is i've got a book that i've been working on for years called the bruce exploitation bible and it's i had a a, a publishing company come to me and say, Hey, would you re- be willing to write a book on this? And I was like, first I was like, well, I, you know, I love these movies. I grew up on these movies, but I just, I was like, I, I don't know. I don't want to write a book on this. I got a couple of book ideas I want to do, but it's, and then I thought about it and started paying attention to why I fell into it and why I find it interesting. And I actually was like, some of my earliest filmmaking techniques were learned from watching these movies. I went, you know what? I think there is something there for me to, to write. Cause I'm passionate about it. You know I mean? It's, horrible some of these films are there's other elements of it that i find extremely interesting like no man has ever you know had a an entire film genre based on him you know what i mean and it's like the closest he might come is clint eastwood in the spaghetti westerns but even there it was a sort of a combination of sergio leone and the style and the tone but you know there's plenty of people that were imitating clint they weren't like trying to fool people that clint eastwood as much were in these films like with bruce lee it was very specific to him so I agreed and I started working on it. But, you know, as, as my life has been, it's I, 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 two things. One as I work so much. It's like it's hard to get a whole set aside the time to write a book. But also, as I would write it, the more I wrote it and dove into it, I started discovering more and more things about it. And I ended up working on a documentary that we started about four years ago that should be coming out at the end of this year. So anyways, this publisher had come to me and asked me to, to do this book. And I, I, um, I just didn't know what to write about. But eventually, as I was as I was progressing through it and thinking about it, I started to realize there was plenty to write about. You know, I just I was uh, so many odd psychop- There's so much uh, the, being a being a it's not even really a genre. It's not like necessarily like black exploitation films or spaghetti westerns or something like that. or kaiju movies. You know, it's it's this sort of subgenre of subgenres. You know but it still exists and it had a real interesting psychology behind it. And so as I was doing this, um, as I was doing this, um, uh, documentary that I got asked to do, we started um, you know, I started to meet all the filmmakers. I started to meet the actors. Um, I began to realize that these films are actually disappearing. I mean, they're like, and many of them have, you know, for all their faults that they have there, um, there's plenty of, Um, technicians, performers, directors, et cetera, et cetera, that worked on these films that cut their teeth on these movies that from a historical perspective, they make the films important, you know? And so um, I've sort of taken on a new sideline of business, which I would say business more of of a, a goal, which is to find these films as much as possible and restore them so we don't lose them forever because there are many of them that are barely surviving on YouTube as these cropped, Nineteenth generation versions of the films, and the the companies themselves have burned the films. They've, they've literally the Shaw Brothers went through a number of them and threw them into the ocean. Literally threw films into the ocean because they didn't want people to own them. And so, um, anyways, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting journey. Very Indiana Jones and the Temple of Kung Fu movies, you know.
1: Oh, I know. And but, but it, let me ask you though, what. With- when you did this deep dive in and finding that these films were so badly deteriorating and about to go out, is that what led you to go into Pearl River, the imprint to try to restore?
0: Yes, Pearl Pearl River. So I'm working on this documentary actually with Severn Films, and um, we're, we're releasing a number of films that deal specifically with the Bruce Location aspect. Pearl River, on the other hand, is a little bit more of an offshoot. I realized as I was dealing with the Bruce Poitacian-type films that many of these historical kung fu films are also just getting left to the wayside. Films that I grew up on, going to the theater and, and watching, you know, on the big screen and being inspired by some great movies. I mean, really great movies that, you know— uh you, we went to when we went to hong kong and taiwan and, and south korea we would like go to their film archives and they wouldn't have these movies anymore they didn't exist and then it was like you go to film collectors and film collectors are an interesting bunch some of them have these films and they're like no i'm never gonna take it out of my closet you can't ever see it <laughs> it's like there's some weird sort of like strangeness that goes on there and then occasionally you might find a Uh, a guy going, yeah, sure, I'll rent it to you or whatever. There's a guy named Dan Halstead who's a a film collector. He's now in Portland, Oregon. He's great. He's been helping us because he's got a a number of films. If you look him up um, online, you can find his great story of when he found a theater in Canada that had, had like literally hundreds of these movies just in their basement. He just managed to get them all. But people like him that have been really helping us because I'm just looking to get them transferred and restored for an audience you know, I just want to make sure they're not lost forever. You know, let's get them while there's still some, some, uh, you know, workable elements off of these 35 millimeter prints that haven't gone completely bad or chopped to pieces. Let's, let's get them, let them go. And so I've been searching through going to Italy and South Africa and Asia, et cetera, to try and find film prints that we can, uh, we can release through Pearl River. It's a small grassroots company. We've only done Four releases so far. Fifth one's coming out pretty soon. And the recent one's called The Basher Box. Mm-hmm. It's about, this is two films that were, the Basher era was an era of the, the kung fu film that evolved from outside of a very long traditional style of fighting where you get like um, these Wong Fei-Hung movies where it was very classical, like sword fighting you know and some mystical magical flying around kind of sword play and the basher era was where they started getting more realistic and and their fights were more like putting people's heads through tables and knives and it was very much that era of filming so we decided to put out a couple of films that we had uh, negatives of that we could make uh, transfers from and do a box set of of those films and give it some context because that's what i want to do is be sort of a criterion in a sense of these Kung Fu films, hopefully where we get these films, give them context, show why they're important or why they're interesting and, and, and give them some new life. So the audience, you know, gets a chance to either have a chance to see them again, or maybe for the first time and, and get a chance to experience them.
1: And if I'm correct, you do doc, you do commentary on each one of these films. Um,
0: I do them on some of them, yeah I did them on the last couple And I usually, like, I, I first I did a couple by myself Now I bring on other people that I work with uh, The recent one has myself actually And a guy I do a podcast with A, a podcast called The Clones Cast Which is actually on the Bruce Plotation um, genre, basically So we just talk about these films But he did the podcast, uh, excuse me He did the uh, commentary on the last one with me um, The next one I'm doing with somebody else as well the film called Duel of the Seven Tigers that were uh, I was just up interviewing one of the actors, one of the remaining actors from the movie. We got a few of them interviewed, luckily, over the last couple of years before they passed away. Um, so we're hoping that disc will be coming out by uh, late summer.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember like the names of the other ones. You said the Bastard Brothers. What Was one Dynamo and the, the, um, the, the Leg Fighters? Right.
0: The first one was called The Leg Fighters. That yep. was our spine number one. We, and spine number two was Dynamo three and four is the basher box. So that's uh, the awaken punch and uh, the prodigal boxer combined together. And then the next one is dual the seven tigers.
1: And all these are available for listeners wondering on Amazon and, and they're all very reasonably priced and they're Blu-rays and they come packed with a lot of extra features that you're probably, that you rarely ever yeah, get well, for this I genre. Know,
0: I, <laughs> correct. And that's what I'm trying to do more and more is just as we, you know, like we have to build up. We're very Like I said, grassroots, so we don't have a lot of money. And, so I'm just trying to make sure that the content that goes in it instead is it's just bluff. It's, some, like it's something interesting. Like one of the things we're doing a piece on for the next one is about the movie theaters that used to show these films back in the 70s and early 80s and where, what's happened to them since then. And we've covered both the Chinese theaters and the, uh, the American theaters up in the Bay Area and just, you know, go out and, and just make try to make quality little short documentaries on certain aspects of the, of, of the history of these films to, to give it more interest, you know?
1: And on that note, I'm going to talk to you about two films that you have no involvement in, but there are martial arts films. They're two of my favorites, you know, that are not Bruce Lee. One of them is the five deadly Venoms. And the other one is Kung Fu right. Hustle. They're to- totally different right. films. Okay. Well,
0: so, Kung Fu Hustle. We just interviewed one of the, the actors from Kung Fu Hustle last weekend because he's in he's in one of the he's in Duel of Seven Tigers actually, and um, and then and Five Deadly Venoms. We entered we in- interviewed um, one of those actors for the, the documentary that's coming out on the Bruce Plotations. His name's Lo Meng, um, and he was he was the Toad in the in the Five Deadly Venoms.
1: But what did you think of the Five Deadly Venoms?
0: I mean, it's 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 love fun. it. It's a great movie. And, and, and trust me, it's like one of the more famous ones, because it's kind of like an interesting premise, but there are, I think there's a number of Shaw Brothers films around that time, like Executioners from Shaolin and even Vengeance, that are probably as good, if not better, than The Five Deadly Venoms, but that certainly sparked an interest in people, and, and it was, um, you know, it was, uh, I love it, I've seen it a number of times, and it's a, it's a. I'm actually kind of shocked in this modern day and age that hasn't been remade in some fashion or another. You know,
1: it's got the perfect premise to be remade. I mean, it's calling to be remade. Maybe sure. it just needs the right director that You know, I don't know. I'm talking to somebody who has an idea of martial arts directing. You could, yeah. You could get it go. You could play the master that sets them all off, and um, you have your role that way. And then uh, it's because it's it's one of the few movies that actually has twists and turns in the plot for this genre you know where a lot of them are right. pretty straightforward and again for me just seeing the physicality of all the different venoms and the other people it's just yeah, yeah, yeah it's exactly. amazing
0: no it's a, it's a great one and the and all the actors and um performers in it and cheng che who directed it he's a he was probably the most well-known, actually. He was sort of the uh, Sam Peckinpah of the Shaw brothers, you know.
1: All right. All right. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about that you have coming up or what are you working on?
0: No, it was good. quite a good conversation. I, I would just say that, you know, look the Basher box up. Look Pearl River up. Uh, you can look up, you know, my on Bruce Bible, which is on Instagram and on Facebook. You can also look on my personal, you know, uh, you know, Twitter accounts, Michael Worth or Instagram, which is then Outlaw on Instagram. And I'm always updating the things that we're doing. Like you mentioned, Appleseed's currently on Showtime, should be on for the rest of the year, I believe, um, before uh, we, I think we transfer over to elsewhere. I've got a couple of films coming out at the festivals this year. Um, uh, one's called The Butterfly Guard, and uh, the other one's called The Sugar Moon Tribe. So both of these two films, I've directed both of them, I acted in both of them um and then um i'm working right now i, I don't we're probably going to be shooting in this summer i'm working like i said i've been working on a script with Dolph lundgren for over a decade and i think we finally got out of finance so hopefully the family we will be shooting that um but uh yeah look I, I just you know you can just follow me on social media i'll always promote whatever's coming out and uh and like i said i think the bruce pointation bible should be coming out later this this year with a, to kind of correspond with the documentary and the the box set we're releasing. So.
1: And I'll put that in the um, listeners. I'll put that in the notes, you know, where, you know, the, the Pearl river imprints okay. with the Amazon links or whatever, you know, I'll put them there so people can find it they want to purchase for Amazon or they could search it and find other spots that they want to support a different company besides Amazon, which I understand. Um, right. Right. And then of course I'll, put the link to your Facebook thing with Bruce exploitation and those kinds of things. Cause it, it's, these are things I know as myself, as a martial arts fan growing up watching Kung Fu theater on, on Saturdays, you know, and it just, you just enjoy it. And it's finally coming back to see these, these things that I grew up watching and I'm just happy that you are restoring them back so we can get those, that love. And I'm passing them on to watch with my children and they're enjoying them.
0: Right. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, that's the idea. I'm hoping we we start doing really well with the company because the the more people we get buying and the more I'll be able to keep finding the films because it's finding these films, getting the rights to them, restoring them, creating content. It's a, it's a it's a costly you know thing, but I love it. I mean, I love it. It's just uh, it takes an effort, though. So that's for sure.
1: So you're, you're unlike unlike Indiana Jones, where I said this this belongs in a museum. You're like this belongs on a Blu-ray.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) I just got to get that
1: hat. Well, thanks again. And, um, uh, Michael for joining me and thank you,
0: Steve. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And listeners, um, stay tuned for our next episode, which will either be a movie review decided by the cast of a die an interview or something that we've been starting recently discussions on different topics of related to movies.